Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of November 16th, 2021. And 16 books this week. It was a big week. But that being said, it was kind of a down week for me. There wasn't anything that blew me away. And there was a couple of books where I just, I don't know. I don't know if I'm being nitpicky. I guess we'll see if Rocky felt the same way. But I was kind of kind of disappointed in the week. I don't know. What did you think, Rocky? Is it just me? Uh, well, I was. I got some disappointments, uh, sure. Uh, there was a couple of... Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't mind... Uh, there was about four that I enjoyed, and the rest were sort of mediocre. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get we'll get into it, and uh, yeah, we'll get into it. I was uh, I was hoping for a little bit more bang for the ending of uh, uh, Fear State with Batman, so I was a little disappointed with that. But we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, I I agree. That was one of the disappointments. But we're gonna kick it off with Blue and Gold number four from writer Dan Jurgens. Ryan Sook does the art in the present day. Kevin McGuire does the art in the Blue Beetle sequences. Dan Jurgens and Norm Ratman do the art in the Booster Gold sequences. Ryan Sook does the colors for all. Rob Lee on letters. Um, so while this wasn't... This whole Blue and Gold series has been good, not great. Uh, I certainly love when Dan Jurgens writes Booster. Booster was created by Dan Jurgens, so I always like the characterization he gives them. Uh, but what made this really work for me was seeing Dan Jurgens do Booster Gold art and seeing Kevin McGuire do Blue Beetle Booster Gold art, basically. I mean, it, it that first page where you see you're kind of looking up at the sky and you see the uh, the Justice League in Kevin McGuire, you know, the way Kevin McGuire renders it, you know, that just brought back a lot of memories, 1987, 88 with uh, Maguire's version of, of the Justice League. You know, the Bahaha era, it's it's classic. Yeah. And and I love that. As far as the story itself, you know, it's a Booster Golden Blue Beetle story. So it was, it was on brand, I guess you would say. Uh, basically, the story is Blue Beetle and Booster Gold are both talking about the first time they ever teamed up and fought against somebody. And they fight against one of, um, I guess, I mean, not that Booster really has nemeses, but uh, this this villain they fight against, his name is Blackguard. And he, whenever he first appeared, he was a, a you know Booster Gold villain or somebody that Booster Gold was the first one to fight. So they're both recounting what happened. And uh, as we've seen before, you know, we've seen these types of stories before where you get one perspective, then you get the other perspective. And the truth is actually something totally different. So <laughs> it wasn't the most uh, original story, but it was humorous. And uh, I don't know. I, I I enjoyed it, especially for that art. But, you know, it's eight issues. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, they used a whole issue to do this. thought it was interesting. So overall, it's pretty solid, especially because of the art. I think the art really makes it, like I said, both the Dan Jurgens and the uh, Maguire pages and the color throughout is nice and bright and you know it suits the kind of lighthearted tone of the book so for me this was one of the better books of the week what do you think Rocky uh yeah I, I agree uh Ryan Silk's art's really good Kevin Maguire I mean it's just nobody does facial expressions in, especially in a comedic setting than Kevin Maguire and you know the guys just you know it's funny because I find that artists over time can sort of like lose some of their 
can lose some of the that initial passion or zeitgeist that that makes their our artistry work. But Kevin McGuire, every time the guy draws, it's like the first. It just brings back those memories of the Justice League International. And I know that he keeps going back to the well, but uh, hey, man, if the well isn't empty, why not go back to it? I like the callback to Blackguard here. I, I like that that's used, that that is actually the first appearance. There's a classic first appearance of Booster Gold, uh, which I'm happy to report that I have. I bought it off the rack back in the day, and I think I think it's still in a, probably a 9.4, considering the fact that I bought it off the rack. I can, I can say that with pride. <laughs> so I enjoy it. And uh, I, I, yeah, this, this is a, this is, you know, this is a, a good story. There, there is. Uh, if if you're a fan of Dan Jurgens, this is just right up there. Just a classic. I mean, with with these two disagreeing on the past, they both have. You know, usually it's Booster Gold that has the ego, <laughs> and uh, he usually he always remembers things in a narcissistic manner that interprets and makes him look in the best light. But he, here, even even uh, Blue Beetle tends to. Uh, I'm always, frankly, I'm a blue, I tend to believe Blue Beetle. I think Blue Beetle's recollection is probably more accurate, although I think writer Dan Jurgens sort of exaggerates <laughs> even Blue Beetle's uh, recollection because uh, Blue Beetle always has, you know, they each, these guys are best friends and, and yet they sort of, they sort of, as much as they love each other, they tend to think of each other as their respective sidekicks, <laughs> even though they're forming their own team. And it, and it works to, to good effect here. And yeah, I, again, nothing necessarily stands out as being memorable here. And I, I want to be clear, even though this week might be a little bit of a, a not, not my favorite best week for DC, uh, this is consistent quality by Dan Jurgens. This is, if like, I'm a, I enjoyed this. Uh, I wasn't expecting anything to stand out. But this was just fun. This is good fun that I expect from uh, Blue Beetle and Booster Gold. And again, the art is fantastic. You're going to get, I mean, even Guy Gardner shows up. And uh, I, I love the use of the, the 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 social media. Again, the commentary from the people uh, watching Booster Gold and Blue Beetle go through their machinations. And of course, uh, uh, you, you've got the, the central narrative as well as this alien, this other alien wants to get revenge because uh, she wants to get revenge against Booster Gold and Blue Beetle because... Uh, they disrupted their plans when they attacked the Justice League. And uh, just, uh, again, good comedy, good action, and looking forward to the next issue. Yeah, we'll see. have to see how it, how it plays out next issue. So, uh, Okay, on to the next book. Uh, and while Rocky's getting the... Uh, yeah, getting the graphics up there, I'll give the credits real fast. Suicide Squad, number nine, written by Robbie Thompson. We have Eduardo Penseca and Julio Ferreira. They do the art, the line work for pages 1 through 11. And then Dexter Stoy handles the art for pages 12 to 22. Marcelo Maialo on colors and Wes Abbott on letters as the Suicide Squad goes to space. So what would you think, Rocky? Uh, <laughs> okay, sorry. I... Uh... I still require just a little bit more time to adjust my my, my notes, but um, first, I the, the machinations here continue to to build up by Amanda Waller, uh, but things are things are definitely uh, things are closing in fast on Amanda Waller. Uh, Rick Flag is creating his own Suicide Squad, 
which and he's recruiting various members to basically ultimately take down Amanda Waller. It seems to be closing in on her. Meanwhile, this uh, this issue is has sort of like a like a well, it's got a it's 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 entitled the Final Frontier, and it's like the right stuff. Think of all those you know. I think of Armageddon. This opening, this there's there's a double page spread here with with Superboy or I guess. <laughs> Uh, you know, along with Nocturna and, um, and, and Talon and the rest of the gang sort of, you know, they're going to be going off into space because they're going to be going to, to, to Oa because they need to, they need to pick up something that's going to help protect Earth 3 because Amanda Waller already got, has already got away. They, they were in hell last issue where they obtained something from the, uh, Rock of Eternity to magically protect Earth 3 from being attacked, uh, entered, by through magical means and now they have to get something scientific from the from from oa uh where the green green lanterns were and so this issue uh, just involves showing showing amanda's amanda waller suicide squad off to oa and also it's showing the uh, uh rick flag suicide squad which consists of uh Lars Zod, who is uh, General Zod's son, as well as uh, a parademon whose name nobody can pronounce, along with the cheetah, and it's um, a lot of machinations. There's a there's a lot happening. Uh, Ambush Bug continues to be a character that is growing on me. I was never always a big fan of Ambush Bug, but I like what Jeremy Adams is doing here. Ambush Bug continues to say things which. Even though they break the fourth wall, I still feel like I'm part of the story. I kind of like that he does a little bit. It's Jeremy Adams having fun with it. Robbie Thompson. Pardon me. I apologize. Uh, (laughs) Jeremy Adams. I love him on The Flash. Robbie Thompson. My apologies. Still, I love those guys. I love Robbie Thompson. Apologies, Robbie Thompson. Uh, I love that Amanda Waller here. She refers to Earth 424, which is interesting. Um Apparently, she got a Kryptonian ship that the Suicide Squad is traveling in to Oa from Earth-424. That's very curious. Earth-424, I thought that we had like 52 Earths. I know that we have a multiverse with more Earths than that, but I thought we had, we still, I remember Joshua Williamson giving an interview saying we still had multiversity, that it was still around. We And I, and now we have Earth-424, so now we got a different numbering system. I thought we had the multiverse with a, with 52 worlds and a series of multiverses with 52 Earths. And anyways, that's my, the continuity guy in me. I'm just, it's, I, it's a little bit frustrating. Not a big deal. I guess we don't have 52 Earths anymore. Making up a multiverse, which forms part of a larger omniverse. We now have an unlimited number of Earths. Uh, and of course, leave it to Amanda Waller to find a Kryptonian chip somewhere to suit her purposes. Um, yeah. I love the art. The art here is fantastic. The uh, uh, the, the character work uh, is is really good. I I love uh, Aka. I always forget uh, Chalubra. Is that her name? Yeah, <laughs> Chalubra. I love the fact that she's still angsting over the fact that she's such a bad person that she was killed and she ended up in hell. Uh, Talon finally speaks. <laughs> He finally speaks to Chalubra and admits that he's working against, he's working for Rick Flagg against Amanda Waller. Uh, finally, Nocturna it reveals that she's got some affection toward uh, Superboy, which we always sort of expected. But that's these these sort of pl- subplots that Robbie Thompson has been developing have, have slowly, they're slowly now coming to the forefront. Uh, this is working here. This tension is really building. 
the emotions between Chalaber and Talon, you, you can you can really see it coming into play. I really like this. Even even the lead scientist who with Amanda Waller, she's also working with Flag, going to be training Amanda Waller. I don't know. I know how much you hate Amanda Waller, uh, Jace, uh, but it seems to me that you know Amanda Waller always seems to be five steps ahead of everyone else. But I gotta I gotta give Robbie Thompson credit here because at the end of this issue, I'm thinking that the walls are closing in on Amanda Waller, and I don't know how she's going to get out of this. But because we know it's Amanda Waller, we know she probably has a few tricks up her sleeve. Because if she can get a Kryptonian ship from uh, a random Earth Earth 424, she probably is a couple of steps ahead uh, of even Rick Flagg, but he has he doesn't know it yet. So uh, again, uh, I enjoyed this. This is one of my this is if I had to put my top five DC titles, Suicide Squad would be one of them. And um, yeah, I I enjoyed this. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, when I saw they were going to be in space first thing I thought was, well, that's interesting. I don't know that I've ever seen the Suicide Squad go into space. And it's one thing to go into space like you're in orbit, right? You're around the Earth. But no, the, these guys go to Oa, right? I mean, they are they are out there. Um, and Oa's all jacked up, just like we've seen in the, in the Green Lantern uh, comic from Jeffrey Thorne. So in a way, it felt a little in service of editorial, you know, Hey, maybe not enough people are reading green lantern suicide squad selling well because of the movie and whatnot. Let's do a crossover. Like we've, we've had so many crossovers since this infinite frontier era has begun. And I just wonder how much of it is because, Oh, sorry. My dogs are going crazy. Uh, how much of it is, is, you know, just in service to editorial as opposed to, uh, actual story reasons. So that, that felt a little weird to me. It felt, I mean, Suicide Squad is never really those villains that you think of that are, you know, cosmic level that would be going to Oa. But I think what helps save it is the characterization, like you're talking about that Robbie Thompson gives us and the, and the humor, the humor is just great in this book from Calabra, uh, finally her reaction, you know, she, she's sad about being dead and being for lack of a better word, a zombie, uh, but then when, you know, she's angsting, like you said, tears rolling down her face. And then when she finds out that Talon isn't crazy, uh, immediately that's all forgotten. She pops up, I knew it, I knew it. So, yeah, there's a lot of really cool stuff. I, like you, have never been a big fan of Ambush Bug. So uh, I'm enjoying this character because he's not over the, as over the top of the, as I've seen him in the past. But Robbie Thompson uses him just enough to bring a, a little bit of humor in into it. So... Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. For me, the art in the first half of the book, when it's uh, Edward Panseco and, and Julio Ferreira, is is absolutely fantastic, like above and beyond. The Dexter Soy art is not quite as good. The, the storytelling is still solid, but the rendering and the detail, it's just not quite as sharp. And, uh, you know, they're similar enough that it's not jarring, but I would be lying if I didn't say I'd rather just have... Panseca and Ferreira, you know, do the whole thing for consistency's sake. So uh, I do wish that, that that were the case. But overall, it's a solid issue. It's fun. You know, it certainly is in line with uh, the tone of the book that Robbie Thompson's given us from the beginning. Suicide Squad's definitely one of the more consistent books, one of the better books. Um, so yeah, I mean, my biggest complaint is that, yeah, the, the, the fact that they go to Oa and get, you know, whatever they get there, we don't necessarily find out what it is it that does feel a little 
contrived, like, hey, let's let's just have them go there um, and get this. I mean, I don't even know what the guy, the guy's name. He's like a bird skull guy. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know what his name either. It, it's not. Yeah, I mean, they call him Yedio Ye or something. I think that's how you pronounce it. But when they first say his name, it's just a bunch of scribbles um and we don't and we don't know why and we don't really know who he is or or what have you i mean was he in the green lantern from from I, grant morrison wasn't he like i i, I don't know I the, um maybe he was i i don't remember him he, he maybe i mean i guess i got a good memory but it's short but uh is his name yeah. yadio yadio yeah, something like that and then they call him yorick later on we're just we're just not really sure um why Amanda Waller's recruiting him or, or what have you. Um, but I guess we'll see, but, but again, it just, it just felt forced. Like if you wanted to recruit this guy, why couldn't he be on, but on earth, I guess they wanted to go out in space, but that's the part where it just felt like these aren't people that would be out in space <laughs> that would survive. Uh, yes. you know, they're just regular people with just a little bit of superpower. So yeah, that, that it felt a little contrived. And as far as your Earth 424, I agree with you 100%. When I read that, I was like, wait, I thought it was, and, and maybe I'm completely wrong, but I thought it was, so there's 52 Earths, and then if you go to the next, like there's 52 Earths in the multiverse, right? But now we, yeah. we, we've heard that there's an infinite number of multiverses. So that means there's 52 Earths in each of them. So I, I thought it was like Earth 0 through 52 or whatever, and then you would it would be, if you went to the next, uh, multiverse, it would be Earth 0A. Yeah. 1A, 2A, 3A. And then if you went to the next multiverse, it would be Earth 0B, 1B, 2B, 3B, yeah. all the way to Z. And then it would be AA and yeah. then AB <laughs> and AC. You know what I mean? Like yeah, you could no, go I forever. Yeah. You go 26 times, 26 to the 26th power. And that would, I mean, that's a huge number. So then when she said 424, I, I don't understand that designation i thought it was earth zero through 52 zero being prime and then 52 variations and then an a variation and a b variation. so i i don't know maybe maybe robbie thompson coming over from from marvel where he's done a lot of work did, didn't realize that or maybe they've thrown it all out and it doesn't matter um but yeah i was curious about that myself so anyway let's move on uh next book we're going to talk about is aquaman the becoming number three it's written by Brandon Thomas. The pencils are by Scott Koblish. Wade Vaughn Grobinger does the inks. Adriana Lucas and uh, Alex Gamaris on colors and world design on letters. Uh, I'll talk about the art first. I thought it was pretty solid. Uh, I didn't recognize it immediately as Scott Koblish because uh, usually, um, typically, his line work is a lot thicker. Um, and that's not to say that these are light line weights by any means. I'd say, if anything, they're more medium line weights, but usually he's he's heavy on the line weights. And I don't know if he's doing the kind of lighter line weights or medium line weights to try to convey movement. Uh, you know, this is a, a book where a lot of it takes place, you know, underwater. Typically, when you do that, you're, you're going to want to use finer lines. So maybe that's the reason. Um, but because of that, because of the lighter line weight than he typically used, I did not recognize this as Scott Koblish art, but the, the art is pretty solid. Uh, and that's not to say that I don't like Scott Koblish's art, uh, but in general, I prefer lighter line weights to thicker just because it makes for more detail and it just feels a little bit more kinetic. Um, 
So all that to say, I, I thought the storytelling and the artwork was solid. There's a lot of action in this issue. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily move the narrative forward that much. You know, we got a big logo across the top that says Prelude to Aquaman. We know there's an Aquaman title coming next year from the same writer, Brandon Thomas, which great. I mean, he seems to have a good handle on who Jackson Hyde is. Certainly when we talk about the future state uh, Aquaman title, that's the case. He's writing Jackson Hyde here. Uh, we know he's invested in, in Black Manta. We have the Chuck Brown Black Manta series going on right now. I have a feeling Black Manta is going to become like Aquaman the, the third or something. With his Atlantean <laughs> roots that have been revealed, which I don't necessarily uh, like. I'm not a fan of that. Um, but what's happened so far in this issue is there's been some uh, attack on Atlantis. Some things have been destroyed. They've been, uh, been explosives planted and, and detonated. And Jackson Hyde has been framed for it. You know, his mother's Zebelian, so there's always that animosity because Zebel used to be kind of the penal colony of Atlantis where they sent all their criminals. And then eventually the criminals that lived there had children who didn't do anything wrong and didn't deserve to be there. And so now, you know, as generations have gone by, they're still looked down on by the Atlanteans. There's prejudice and animosity between the two. Um, they've been at war at various times. But Jackson Hyde didn't have anything to do with this. Mira's trying to play both sides, and they kind of the Atlanteans suspect her that she's uh, hiding Jackson and helping them, uh, but they can't prove anything. Meanwhile, Jackson's just trying to get to the bottom of it. His mother uh, was uh, a freedom fighter for Zabel when they were trying to overthrow kind of the more militant government there that was always fighting with Atlantis. So there's a lot of different moving parts. There's a lot of politics. Um, but I, I sort of feel like, like I said, this didn't move the narrative of, of the overall story with who's behind it and why they're framing Jackson and is he going to get out of it. it. didn't move that part of the story or plot forward that much. It, instead, it felt like the whole reason that this issue exists is for the last page. Uh, in fact, for the last word on the last page, as Jackson's mother finally catches up to Jackson and the person that attacked him in the first issue that had this Zebelian um, aquatic armor, this yellow armor on, she stands revealed. Uh, and the very last word of the issue is sister. So we find out from Jackson's mother, and Jackson finds out that Jackson Hyde apparently has a sister. And <laughs> Rocky and I were talking about it earlier. It's like, I didn't know he had a sister. Like, I didn't know either, and neither did Jackson. Uh, but obviously... Jackson's mom did because she's the one that birthed this woman. So her name is Delilah Jackson. She's Jackson Hyde's sister. Why she's trying to beat the crap out of him, why she's framed him, <laughs> why, like what's going on, I don't know. Um, and I sort of have mixed feelings. I, I'm reserving judgment. I don't want to just assume that this isn't going to work. But it feels a little tropey to me, right? Like with with everything we've had go on recently with Nightwing and his sister revealed and with everything we have going on in the I am Batman series with the whole Fox family and you know, these, these, this family of color that's constantly having drama or whatever. I'm like, wait, here we go. Here we go again with a long lost sister with family drama with this family of, of color. I mean, I don't know that we can call them African-American cause they're not from Africa. They're from Zabel, but they look like they're black. Um, and there's a, this drama, you know, sister on brother 
violence here. And it's like, that just feels a little tropey to me at this point. You know, thank God we have static, static shock yeah. where it's a nice uh, African-American family, a family of color that gets along and they have good relationships or whatever. So it's not always falling into these tropes where sister on brother, you know, violence and what have you. So uh, again, I'm, I'm withholding judgment. Brandon Thomas is a good writer. Hopefully he has a good reason. Hopefully it'll work, but I could have done, I could have done without the angry black woman sister beating up on her brother. And we don't even know which one's older at this point. Right. <laughs> I don't think they said, uh, so yeah, uh, I'm holding out judgment. I'm, I'm holding off final judgment on this series, at least, uh, until we get the next issue. So, but I was surprised. Yeah, so I, that, I was. That was uh, Thomas's I, intent. He he did a good job. Yeah, I, I was a little surprised too. Uh, I actually, ironically enough, what uh, that's actually it's not ironic. Uh, I enjoy, what I enjoyed more about the issue was I enjoyed well, I saw the purple ray. Uh, I love something called the trapdoor, the Justice League protocol, the trapdoor. I love the the, the transporting that uh, Jackson Hyde did from various Justice League sort of heroes network sites. You know, because uh, he needed to escape, and and I, I thought that was cool. Just as a bit of yeah. like uh, Justice yeah, League, that was a cool concept. yeah, that was a yeah. cool concept. I yeah, I I, I really that. enjoyed that. You know, and uh, I hope we see more of that in other comic books because, like that that the pure, you know, that the fanboy inside of me just sort of loves that. It was pretty cool, and I I thought that that was done to a really good effect and accomplished. Uh, there was a two page spread that shows. Uh, which I I can't do it justice on the screen here, but there's a two page spread where Jackson Hyde is gets six. He's transported from Titans Tower to the Flash Museum to the Hayward Defense Industries to uh, Challengers Mountain to Titans Tower West to, to Justice League Detroit. All all these little callbacks to these uh, other long canceled series and headquarters. So I thought that was kind of interesting, and I I, I enjoyed that. Um. It, th- there's no doubt here that while uh, DC Comics editorially clearly they're 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 diversifying the aqua the the mythology of Aquaman, we get in the between Black Manta and Aquaman the Becoming, we're really doubling down on, frankly, Black history. I mean, we we know that we're going to get uh, a connection between the sl- uh, Black slave history and the history of Atlantis, where we saw virtually only in all black characters in, in Black Manta in the history of Atlantis. Now we're getting expansion of Jackson Hyde's family with him having a sister and increasing that dynamic. Clearly there's a diversification here, at least by uh at least in that one respect in terms of in terms of the well frankly just making a more bringing in more African American sort of uh, diversity in the in the Aquaman mythology. And you, you know, I, I agree that y- y- you want to be a little bit careful, uh, but it, it's all going to, can it be tropey? Yes, maybe. It all comes down to the story. So far, it's not bad. The idea of an angry sister, that's been done before. But hey, man, uh, you know, I, you know, it, I'm probably not going to like this Delilah Hyde as much as I like, let's say, the sister of Starfire. I love Blackfire, but this Delilah Hyde has an attitude. And apparently, as Jackson Hyde found out in this issue, she knows how to throw a punch. So I think the story here, I trust in, uh, uh, in Brandon Thomas, I trust. And uh, I'm looking forward to see where he takes it. I'm, I am more interested in the in the family dynamic. You're right that we already we've been getting a lot of family dynamics uh, of, of Batman with uh, with um, with Jace, uh, Jace Fox over in Batman. But this is a different character. It's a different mythology. And frankly, I think that Aquaman, 
and especially between what they're doing, what Chuck Brown is doing in Black Manta, even though I don't like how that is necessarily being structured and organized, I do think that uh, I'm getting this, I am getting some semblance that they have a direction where they want to go. And I, you know, if they play their cards right, we can really get a, a, the history of Atlantis can be far more interesting than it has been before. So my fingers are crossed that this will uh, get more and more interesting as series progresses. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm definitely on board for Aquaman. I, I'm a pretty big Aquaman. I've become a pretty big Aquaman fan, even before the Jeff Johns run. I think I guess the Peter David era is what brought me in. And the fact we don't have an Aquaman title or or didn't when the last one ended was, I wasn't a big fan. I want I, I need there to be a regular Aquaman title. I think he's an important enough character that 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 needs to be a thing. So, uh, all right. Up next, uh, I'll give Rocky a chance to get the graphics up while we. Uh, give the credits for The Gardener. This is uh, Batman Secret Files, number one. It ties in with the current uh, okay. Batman Fear State storyline that's going on and, and even goes back to even kind of before that, giving us some background on, on Poison Ivy, who's been a pretty big part of the Fear State storyline and even a little bit before in Catwoman and Batman both. Uh, so it's written by James Tynan, the writer of Batman and the, the architect of Fear State. The art is by Christian Ward. We have uh, and he does the line work and the colors. Uh, and then we have Tom Napolitano on uh, on letters. So I don't think that the gardener, I think it's a character that that Tiny created. Um, but it's so interesting because we haven't really gotten much backstory on her previously. So it's it, it's almost like he created her, but actively as though she's been there all the time. So anyway, what did you think uh, of this one, Rocky? Uh, well, I was... Uh... I find the character of the gardener somewhat redundant. And I, I look, I, I've been a fan. I've been a defender of James Tenney's Batman. I generally have been happy uh, with his, his, the characters that he's added to Batman. And I've been, I will, I will defend, I will defend his run. Uh, even though I'm a little disappointed with the ending, I think it did drag, Fear State did drag on too long. I, I do think, though, that the character of the gardener here is a complete redundancy. Uh, this this is a character that simply does not serve the narrative, and this character does not bring anything new to the table. This character doesn't need to exist, other than the fact that we haven't. Uh, I guess did we need a black lesbian uh, in the in the triangle between Poison Ivy, Harley Quinn? We we needed this character really. This feels tropey to me, because this doesn't serve. You know. I mean, I can. There's all kinds of justifications regarding the narrative of 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 black of expanding Black Manta, of expand of expanding Jackson Hyde and Aquaman the Becoming. That's I, I think that's I think that's frankly needed, and I and and I and I I welcome that. It all comes down to the story. But this Gardner thing is really surprising to me. This her name is Bella Garten, and so it's kind of a tropey name to begin with. She's an eco terrorist. She's always she's actually this is a character who has funded. Who has actually funded uh, Pamela Isley in the past? She has um, this this entire issue, uh, you know, w is actually more of a Pamela Isley story. We don't actually learn much about the gardener here. Uh, this is really about her experiences with Pamela Isley, and it's done through the the, the theme. James Tiny and uh, utilizes the theme of the idea of of, of seeds and about you know. Uh, uh, 
you know how you the seeds sprout and they grow and and you got it you got to be really careful how you treat the seed because any damage to the seed <clears throat> any trauma experienced by a plant can can affect that plant as it grows older so that's sort of like the theme and you know how damaged one can become and it's interesting here that uh that uh the origin of Pamela Isley is mixed in with Jason Woodrow and that she was experimented upon that basically the gardener and Pamela Isley and Jason Woodrow, Woodrow uh, were all part of the same sort of graduate program where they experimented with different kinds of botany. And uh, Woodrow believed in the psycho-spiritual web of the of, of plants. Alec Holland was also part of the program. And uh, he had his own view of plant life. And of course, Pamela Isley, uh, who would become Poison Ivy, had her own view about how to uh, how to talk with plants and how to understand them. And ultimately she was experimented upon and her, her, her blood became poison, became chlorophyll. And, and of course, this is just all, this is, this issue is really just a, a re, sort of like a retelling of, of poison ivy's origin, but at the same time, creating a larger landscape of relating Pamela Isley to Alec Holland, to the gardener, to Jason Woodrow. And, uh, even though I'm a DC guy, to my knowledge, and I, and I will stand to be corrected, and people can let me know, I didn't, I don't think there's been those direct kind of connections made between all those characters in the past. I know that lately in the last few years, Pamela Isley has been spoken of as being another f avatar of the green, potentially, and and they've they've elevated Pamela Isley's power, Poison Ivy's power, to be almost at the level of Swamp Things in different storylines. So it's interesting, but. What this issue does is that it, it makes no bones about it. Uh, you know, pa Pamela Isley is, has connections and they're, they, what are, what, what are the odds? All of them part of the same graduate program, Jason Woodrow, Alec Holland, Pamela Isley, uh, Bella Garten, who, who would become the gardener. All of them, all their, all their, uh, their histories are all interconnected. And part of me is thinking, and of Okay, that's fine. It it's also interesting that Pamela Isley has an affair with Bella Garden, at, who becomes the gardener, and she also slept with Jason Woodrow. So it's clear that Poison Ivy is you know plays both sides of the fence, which I guess we already knew. But part of me is a little bit disappointed because I think this sort of homogenizes all the origins of all these characters that lose some of their uniqueness. And I'm a little disappointed in that. Like, really? I mean, all of them happen to be in the same graduate program. I just thought that was, it was a little bit, I thought that was a cop-out. And it thought I thought it's just way too convenient uh, for all these sort of villainous people with different motivations being part of the same program. I, I was just a little bit disappointed in that regard. Don't get me wrong. It, on the one hand, a lot can be made from it. There's a lot of potential storylines that can come from all from them all having those connections. But it, it, it actually, it it feels like a lot of this stuff were sort of shoehorned in. And I was a little bit, um, uh, I was a little bit uh, disappointed. Now, um, now, what, one of the excuses that the gardener has in this issue is that Ivy's excuse, she says that Ivy's excuse is that the experience of, of trauma is is grounded in Jason Woodrow. So Poison Ivy was 
she was experimented on by Jason Woodrow. So she was traumatized by Jason Woodrow at one point. And the gardener talks about how she helped at times she helped Pamela by, by giving Pamela information on who various, the various uh, oil, like heads of oil companies were in the world. And so the gardener, Bella actually helped Pamela poison Ivy in the past, find and kill a lot of these oil company executives. And so, but the thing is, what's interesting here is that Pamela Isley's mind, you could arguably say was poisoned and manipulated and traumatized by experiment, experimentation by Jason Woodrow. What's Bella's excuse? Bella doesn't have that excuse. Uh, Bella is just, you know, Bella is, in my view, more of an eco-terrorist than even Pamela Isley is. At least Pamela Isley arguably has the excuse of maybe having her blood filled with chlorophyll and maybe... You know, you could say almost manipulated and poisoned by by just the nature of her being. And so I think that this Bella character, because this entire issue is her sort of telling her story to Batman. I don't know why Batman doesn't arrest her, to be honest with you. I uh, I just find Bella to be basically like a, a very, very boring, one-dimensional version of Poison Ivy but without any connection to plants at all, other than the fact that she's got a PhD and she carries a briefcase for reasons which are never told to us. Why is she carrying around a briefcase all the time? It makes no sense. I just, you know, again, I like this issue because it, in what it attempts to do, it ties in all these characters with such a rich history in the DC universe, but at the same time, it disappoints me because it homogenizes it in my mind. And I, and I, you know, other than the beautiful art by Christian Ward, I really thought this this story. I thought let me down a little bit, but uh, I don't know. Did you feel different? I didn't. Um, you hit the nail right on the head. Um, while I I do agree that putting all of these sort of plant based DC villains together does create potential for connections and stories that can come out of that, come out of those relationships. It is very much a retcon. And you're right, you're using the perfect word there. It homogenizes it, makes them all somewhat the same. You're, you're losing the uniqueness and the fact that re in reality, in, in publishing history, these characters didn't all come on the scene at the same time. You know, Poison Ivy was long before Jason Woodrow. And, and, and now you're talking about bringing in Alec Holland and his wife with Swamp Thing. And they happened at different times in different eras of, of DC. And now you're, you're kind of mashing them together. And I, you know, I guess the temptation because they're all sort of plant-based villains uh, or plant-based characters. Uh, the temptation was too great for Tynan to uh, resist, I guess. And in, in, in a way I can see why it would make sense in his head, but yeah, I think it, it, it takes away the uniqueness um, and the fact that they came on the scene at different times, I think is important. And I, I, I rather like the idea of the, the stories about Woodrow, the Floronic man meeting up, with each of these people individually at later times. So now do those stories not matter? Who knows? It's, it's DC. It's the multiverse. It's the omniverse. It's, it's whatever. Um, the other part about it is like you said, it's, it's called secret files, the gardener, but yet it is the Pamela Isley new origin story. Basically it's much, it should have been called Batman secret files, poison Ivy uh, more than the gardener. Cause we don't find out that much about her uh, only, we don't, what we learned about her is only in relation to, to Poison Ivy. We do find out that we're, you know, the gardener basically says, yeah, Poison Ivy could be the most powerful 
character in the DC universe based on what she can do. And we, we sort of saw that in Tom King's Batman, where she literally took over the entire planet. Everybody was her, her automaton uh, in a way. So, you know, whether you agree with that or not, I mean, I personally, I don't think I don't find Poison Ivy an interesting enough character to give her that level of power, but that's just, you know, my own personal opinion of her. I, I just don't, I don't think anybody's ever given her good enough characterization. She used to be very much sort of a mustache twirling villain. Um, who, <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean a female, but you, you get it. Like yeah, her motivation was always humans, bad plants, good humans destroy nature. So they're bad and plants are good. And that was her, her motivation. So I guess one step above a mustache twirling villain, but ne <laughs> never really got into, she wasn't multi-layered. She wasn't complex. And now the complexity is that she's, in a same-sex relationship with Harley? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't begrudge that, but I don't find it particularly interesting either. And I don't know that her sexuality really has much to do with who she is as a character. So she's just not a, she's a character who's supposed to be so powerful and so important. And yet we re we really, in terms of her personality, don't really know that much about her. So I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Although I know she did have a, a solo miniseries not too long ago. I, I didn't read it. So maybe I'm maybe that's on me. Maybe I'm missing out. Maybe that was a, a good series for her characterization. So yeah, this just sort of felt like okay, a little long and a little extraneous for what we needed, right? We're, so we're supposed to be getting some background on who Poison Ivy is and why there's two different sides of her and how they're being melded together in Fear State. I don't feel like this issue is necessary. I feel like everything that was in here, I kind of already knew in terms of two different versions of Ivy. Great. You fleshed it out. Was it necessary? Well, uh, maybe, maybe it was just a chance for Christian Ward to show off his watercolor art, which I like Christian Ward. I think Christian Ward's fantastic. I think the Odyssey series he did at Image a couple of years ago is some of the best comic book art in the last decade. I wasn't a fan of his art here. Um, just a little too messy for me, a little too straight watercolor. Um, a lot of greens and pinks, like you would expect from a Christian Word uh, title. But again, it, it it wasn't my favorite wasn't my favorite Christian Word art, and it just I don't know this it just this just didn't feel necessary to me. So I, I'm I, the more I read of Fear State, and I was trying to be so positive about it, but and we'll talk about it when we get to Batman. It's it's really been kind of a letdown <clears throat> for something that was hyped up to be so big. Yeah, um, it's not really delivering, but. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, Wonder Woman Evolution Part 1's first issue of a new Wonder Woman series from writer Stephanie Phillips. Mike Hawthorne does the pencils. Adriana Benedito on inks. Jordi Blair on colors. Tom, Tom Napolitano on letters. The art here is pretty fantastic. Mike Hawthorne does a pretty good job of, of giving us a very formidable-looking Wonder Woman. She very much is the warrior. She's very muscular. Um, I like that. Uh, I if there's any nitpick about the art, I'm not a huge fan of the way Hawthorne draws Superman's face. It looks kind of wonky at certain times, but it's a minor nitpick. Overall, um, the cinematic feel and the widescreen feel that Hawthorne gives the art, um, I think really, really works. Uh, as far as the story, it's very fast paced narrative. Wonder Woman basically confronts Silver Swan in the museum. We know there's history there that comes across in the story very well from Stephanie Phillips. Um, and then Silver Swan manages to escape by 
making Wonder Woman choose between saving a hostage or pursuing her. So we all know what Wonder Woman's going to pick. And then we get uh, a few sort of poignant moments of, of Wonder Woman and Superman together, which is very on point. It comes across as very realistic with the relationship we know that those two have. And then something happens to Wonder Woman at the end. And there's some narration over the over the beginning of the story about um, us as humans evolving. Well, Wonder Woman's more than a human, but it, it still serves that purpose. And all of a sudden her body just seems like it's engulfed in lightning. And then there's a big crack, boom, and Wonder Woman starts flying into this portal and it ends. So what exactly is this evolution? Has Wonder Woman taken some step forward? Like what exactly is going on? We don't know. Um, but I thought it was a solid debut from Stephanie Phillips. Uh, I like her take on Wonder Woman. I like the the narration of it. Um, if I had any any nitpick, it's a it's a tiny one, <laughs> but I'm going to mention it anyway. Um, when Silver Swan is flying away, Wonder Woman throws her lasso around her her neck. Um, but then when she goes to grab the kid, she doesn't let go of the lasso. But yet it somehow it seems like it disappears. But then the next time we see it, it's on her uh, waist again. So I just was, I mean, I, I know when you see that panel of the girl falling and Wonder Woman looking down, you see in the background that Silver Swan is removing the lasso from her around her neck. Yeah. Um, but then it just disappears in the, you know, the next panel. And then Wonder Woman is flying after the girl as she's falling and the, the lasso is just nowhere. So, yeah, just thought it was kind of, I'm like, wait, where's the lasso? Anyway, like I said, minor nitpick. Uh, overall, I thought it was a pretty solid debut. Great main cover, too, from uh, from Hawthorne. What did you think, Rocky? I, um, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be, I'm going to give you a little, so, some pushback on this. I, I, first of all, I'm not a big, I thought Mike Hawthorne's art could, could have been much better. I, I did not, not only did I, did I was an, not a big fan of Superman, I, I think that, I'm not a big fan of the design of Wonder Woman here and Wonder Woman in numerous poses looks like her. She got her nose flattened or her nose broken. Uh, the side profile of Wonder Woman looks completely off. Uh, the, uh, I find the art to be frankly inconsistent. It, it starts off with a double page spread. That's really good. And then, you know, it, and then the design of Silver Swan, of all the designs of Silver Swan, I'm not a big fan of the design of Silver Swan, but I don't want to, I don't want to deal so much with the with the artistic design. I mean, I I can live with that. These these are designs which I've seen before. Uh, I've not the design of Wonder Woman. I I'm I'm just it's not not a fan of. But that's that's not what's going to take me out of the story here. What I wanted to know is th this is called Wonder Woman Evolution, and I I thought it felt I thought it was a little tropey. It starts off. Uh, you know, Silver Swan for no reason whatsoever just in, in, is in a museum that happens to be by a Neanderthal exhibit where the where the theme of the entire story takes place, evolution. <laughs> I get it, uh, but it, it it did feel a little bit sort of uh, it did feel somewhat obvious and forced. But uh, I mean, it, it's it's really odd here that Wonder Woman goes out of her way to save this child from Silver Swan. Silver Swan escapes. Uh, you mentioned the thing with the missing lasso. That's a that's a mistake by Mike Carthorn. Even that's not that big a deal to me. I, I guess what wh where I was con what I was wondering here is 
I really think that this entire issue was was frankly unnecessary and wasted because if this this story is about aliens coming down to choose Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman has to defend the existence essentially the you know defend the human race and and the question I have that I ponder is why if you're going to choose somebody to represent the human race why choose Wonder Woman now that is something that might come in a subsequent issue here but I don't know about you Jace and you never mentioned anything about this so I'm actually curious as to your thoughts but at one point, Wonder Woman and Superman, they're, they're sitting atop the Himalayan mountains and they're, they're staring down and it's a, it's a nice enough view uh, and uh, Superman and Wonder Woman are having a conversation and Superman is actually defending the human race. Wonder Woman's depressed. I mean, she actually says, I mean, you know, she talks about how we're so much different than this. Uh, she, she reminisces about a time where some hikers finally hiked up to the top of the mountain and, and they stumbled upon her and Superman doing there and 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 she talks about how so many humans risk their lives for doing something that her and superman can do instantly like go to the top of the himalayans and look at the beautiful view and superman is talking about remind superman reminds wonder woman about that, that humankind is capable of such amazing passion he says and that the that to to and that the mountains won't kill us but people have spent their entire lives trying to conquer them to accept this challenge because it brings them joy superman is sounding like he's defending the human race and yet at the end of this issue it's wonder woman that's chosen to defend the human race and i thought of all the of all the people to choose why why would the aliens choose wonder woman now again that might sound like, I'm, am, am I being too harsh in that? But I just thought that was really, really off. I didn't see why anyone would choose Wonder Woman. And the other thing is, is Wonder Woman isn't human. She's Amazon and she's a god. If I wanted to, if I, if I wanted to come up with a reason to defend the existence of cats, would I ask a dog? Would I talk to somebody outside the species to defend? I mean, I guess I could. Wonder Woman protects the human race, but it's not obvious to me that you should be going to Wonder Woman as a defense for humanity. Uh, and um, But again, that probably is a little harsh on my end, but I was just a little bit... I, I thought that this opening issue, it, it didn't really nail home the, the, the narrative in terms of uh, the, the central theme. I, I was looking for a little bit more. And... Um, I don't know. I was really surprised that Superman was the one defending the human race. <laughs> how, how passionate Superman was, and and it's Wonder Woman that gets plucked. And I'm I'm really kind of curious to see where this is going to go, uh, because it seems to me that Wonder Woman already seems to be having doubts, and she has she doesn't even the central the central adventure and reason for this issue the central reason for this series hasn't even gotten underway yet so i'm really hoping that this picks up in the second issue in, in my mind but uh i don't know maybe i'm being too harsh what do you think yeah well i mean i i get your point and i thought the same thing Wait, why is why is wonder woman being chosen she's not even human but then i on the heels of that i th i thought well i'm going to reserve judgment because here's the thing we've this is a story we've seen a ton of times right like every time it's one of these stories comes along where somebody's putting the human race on trial, I immediately think about the debut two-part episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, Encounter at Farpoint, where Picard is charged with defending the human race. And then recently, The Blue Flame by Christopher Cantwell over at Vault's doing the same thing. So I thought, well, if you're gonna do go if you're gonna go to that trope, why you gotta make it different. So why not choose somebody who's not human to defend the humans and somebody who's 
who seemed sort of down and, and depressed. And I, I took that as, and again, I don't know necessarily the timing or editorial instruction or whatever, but I sort of felt like the reason Wonder Woman seems kind of down here is because of everything she's gone through recently in her own title and the end of Dark Knight Death Metal. But maybe I'm maybe yeah. I'm reading too much into it and that's not, not the case. So it's yeah. Stephanie Phillips and, you know, I, she's a great writer. I, I trust her. So we'll, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, all right. While Rocky grabs the graphics, let me give the uh, credits for Green Lantern number eight. Luscious Latour is the name of the, or Lucas. I mean, it's L-U-C-I-S. I don't even know how that's supposed to be pronounced. But anyway, that's the name of the, the issue. It's by Jeffrey Thorne. We have Criss Cross and Marco Santucci as the artist. So Santucci we're used to having as a Green Lantern artist. This time he's joined by Criss Cross rather than... Um, Tom Dernick. Uh, Juan Castro handles the inks on pages 9 through 15. Michael Atea on colors. Rob Lee on letters. Yeah, this was kind of a mess for me, but I'll let you go first, Rocky. What'd you think of this issue of Green Lantern? Uh, uh, well, I <laughs> this I hate to say this, but you know, Jeffrey Thorne is starting to lose me a little bit here. I, I really uh, I struggled with this issue, but I'm also, I'm simultaneously sort of excited about about the ideas that he's bringing forward, but at the same time, I admit to some confusion, and I feel more confused than I think I should be at this point, and I do find, and the art, I've never really been a fan of the art, and I think maybe, one, I think at one point when I reviewed previous issues of Green Lantern, I said the art was growing on me, and maybe I lied. Because now suddenly it, it 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 just feels more jarring to me. I wish we had a more traditional artist. I, I long for an Ethan Van Skyver or it uh, or, or just I don't know. I just feel that if this had a different sort of artistic feel, it might sort of uh, feel a little bit different. But in any event, uh, this is talking about the source, about chaos and doom, old gods and new gods, and the and that John Stewart is ascended. Lonar, one of the new gods, who's also a Green Lantern, has has basically been telling John Stewart that, look, you're part of the Ascended. In other words, he's kind of a new god, but he isn't. Lonar, the the god of journeys, who is a new god, the god of journeys, took John Stewart on a on a sort of into the distant past last issue, uh, where he saw the origins of the of the the Guardians when they were when they were simply Owens, and where they did battle against. Uh, I guess the the old gods of uh, Dark Side when he before he became Dark Side and and uh, Granny Goodness and all and all that jazz and and clearly there's a history here that might be might be rewritten I'm not sure but there there's so many moving parts here and it's it's not clear what Jeffrey Thorne is doing it's only because I heard him say something in an interview that this might relate back to the old Green Lantern series Green Lantern Mosaic where at that at that point. John Stewart was the first human guardian, but that sort of idea went away. But I think Jeffrey Thorne is bringing that back. Clearly, he is folk. He's making John Stewart. He's elevating John Stewart to a godlike status here. And just like Kyle Rayner used to be the torchbearer, it looks like now it's and Hal Jordan had this parallax moment. It now looks like John Stewart's going to have his moment again because he had it in Green Lantern Mosaic in that storyline from twenty years ago. Now he's going to be elevated and he's going to be ascended. What does that mean? We don't really necessarily know at this point. Um, uh, I I don't 
I don't know where it's going. It's clear, though, that uh, Jeffrey Thorne is making Jon Stewart very heroic. Jon Stewart is is focusing on on wanting to save lives as a Green Lantern, even though Lonar keeps telling him, "Look, I mean, you're more than a Green Lantern. You you you've got a greater greater responsibilities." And and at the end, at some point, uh, Jon Stewart ends up going in into this um, uh, going into this portal where he, I don't know where he ends up, but he he goes into this portal where he uh, he encounters, I don't know. I don't know who he encounters. He encounters some new entity, and we'll have to wait till next issue in terms of exactly what's happening with Jon Stewart. But I'm a little frustrated here, and, and, and I have to really try to organize my thoughts so I don't sound like a blabbering idiot when I talk about this, because... Uh, on the one hand, this is, this was, I understood this to be a, a story about the central power battery was destroyed. Jon Stewart and the, and 1,000 of his fellow Green Lanterns were sent to the dark sector. And then all their rings went out when the central battery exploded. 300 guardians, 300 Green Lanterns were hunted down and killed in the dark sector. And I thought this was going to be about Jon Stewart rallying the troops in the dark sector and fighting off the, these hunters that were coming to kill them. But now in the midst of all this, all of a sudden, we have John Stewart. No, he's ascended, and, and and Lonar comes along, and he's a new god. And now, this feels like it really muddies what I thought was a very maybe fun, action-packed narrative. Now it feels confusing a little bit. So while I admire the ideas of what Jeffrey Thorne has introduced, I have to admit to being a little bit frustrated that maybe he's bit off a little bit more than he can chew. Um, meanwhile, though. I really do like. Uh, I enjoy more what uh, Joe Mullen, uh, Joe Mullen, the the Green Lantern back, uh, back on Oa. I like uh, how I like the agencies that that she's taken. She's really stepping up to the plate, sort of organizing the 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 remaining lanterns back on Oa. She is actually communicating with um, the uh, the other scientists, Abacrix Payafel. Is her name Abacrix, and they're. They're they're looking at some old tapes of Guardians talking about uh where, where they talked about the myth of Guardians omnipotence and and I think that what's happening here is that the Guardians at one point talked about their history and that maybe they weren't omnipotent and there's some secret of the Guardians that we don't know yet and and there's likely probably a sort of like a a double agent or somebody within the Guardians betrayed the Guardians and destroyed the Central Power Battery. And two guardians in particular, Koyos and uh, Nemosini, uh, are the ones that uh, may have, uh, at some point, uh, they may be the, the source of the betrayal of the guardians. Uh, two years ago, Koyos, the guardian Koyos, traveled to the world to, to Xerox, the world of magic, which was a sorcerer's world. And while while another guardian, Nemosini, traveled to Earth, but what was their agenda? We're not really sure, but we do know that. We do know early on in the first issues of Green Lantern, it was a magical based attack on when the Owens, when the Green Lanterns essentially, uh, when the new, when the United Planets replaced the Green Lantern Corps, that they, they had a magic based attack by that, uh, uh, by that group whose name I forget. In any event, clearly the Owens have been, Green Lantern Corps has been under attack. And how is this related to what these other Owens are doing? Um, Meanwhile, all uh, all the former lanterns have now be, been made citizens of Oa by Joe Mullen, 
Uh, she really needs to have a better name than that. She needs to have a better. She needs to have a better name than than just her name, Joe Mullen. It's it's it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> and meanwhile, this uh, this other this Abba Abacrix continues to do her investigating, and she ends up getting she ends up getting uh, incapacitated by a guardian that. Um, that uh, I'm assuming has some sort of uh, nefarious purpose by, for taking out the Green Lantern Corps. There are so many moving parts here. I hate to say this, but I think that this series might be inaccessible to new readers. If they're going to try to understand all that's going on from issues one through eight here, this is a this is confusing. This is confusing, and artistically it doesn't help. The change in artistic style from uh, Tom Rainey's style to uh, Santushi's, it just it just doesn't work very well, and it feels like completely different stories as opposed to stories that are supposed to be related. And I, like I said, I, I think something very important is trying to be said here by Thorne, but it's just not, you know, just. It seems I take one step forward and then two steps back, but I'm frustrated. I see some potential for greatness here, but story-wise, I think that this confuses me more than than it should. And I don't know. Tell tell me, it's all in my head. <laughs> well, I don't know that it's necessarily confusing. He's in, introducing these new concepts, which I I get. I mean, you want to tell the story that you want to tell, and that that's perfectly fine. You know, we always thought right from the beginning, having these two disparate storylines, like give us two Green Lantern books if that's the case. Um, it's so weird that they do it. Like the first half of the book is one story, second half of the book's the other. Like at least intermix them. It just feels so. It just feels so strange. Um, and is Jeffrey? I mean, oftentimes we've had two Green Lantern books, and is Jeffrey Thorne the right person to be telling both the stories? You know, I'd argue that no, he's not. Because I, I agree with you. So it's and it's not even so much of the confusion, because like you said, there there's potential here. The problem is that he's in, we haven't gotten any answers about the battery, about who's behind it, about who in the dark sector is targeting the Green Lanterns. What you know, there's not enough answers to the storylines. He already started with the first issue and now we're eight issues in. And it's like he's starting new storylines when he didn't never finish the old ones. The old ones are just abandoned in a way. So that to me, that's the problem, right? We're not getting enough answers and he <laughs> keeps introducing, piling new ideas on. And at some point you just jump off because you're like, I'm, I'm tired of just having question on top of question on top of question. Uh, we know, and it was certainly evident in the first issue, that he's a huge, huge john stewart fan um and it felt like fan fiction to be honest with you but i gave him all kinds of credit on backing <laughs> off from that after the first issue well well last issue i was really worried that it was returning and here it's it's returned full force john stewart greatest hero in the history of dc he's not even human he's a god he you know the entire history of of the whole universe and the fate of of all of existence is all laid at john's feet it's too much. It really is um, for a book that's called Green Lantern. And we've barely had a couple panels of Hal Jordan. And again, it just, 
it feels like it feels like fan fiction. It feels like a fan who loves John Stewart and has given John just the spotlight and all the agency and what I mean, just call it Green Lantern and just tell John Stewart stories twenty twenty two pages a a month. Why even do any of this other stuff if that's what you want to do? If you're gonna do it, then just do it. You know, so yeah, it is it is frustrating to get just more questions on more questions on more questions. It seems like these this female and male guardian are are quardians is what it's been hinted at. I'm not sure why their skin is blue instead of uh pink or reddish. Maybe it's the quardian spirit that's taken over like again, we just don't know. I'm 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 guessing, I'm speculating. This this series from the beginning has been nothing but question after question after question and we haven't gotten any and none not even one not even one tiny plot thread has been resolved and where's teen lantern what's going on with her again <laughs> you know she was in a coma last issue and now yeah. she doesn't even show up yeah. in this issue again, I think she, she's still in a coma i think <laughs> yeah just one more one more question with with no answer as far as the art i'm a fan of the sojourner mullen storyline art like like we got um i, we, I know that's the marco santucci art as much as I don't care for the Tom Derenick art, or, or I shouldn't say that, as much as sometimes the Tom Derenick art, the proportions seem off, it's still much more similar to what we get from Marco Santucci than what Chris Cross does. What Chris Cross does, it, it doesn't work here at all because it's the style is so different than what Marco Santucci does. And it's a real disservice to both artists what Chris Cross gives us, uh, you know, m- much more impressionistic, um not like santucci at all and so yeah the, the art the, the both both of the uh, art styles suffer by being compared to to each other so yeah um this was a real i don't want to say a letdown because i have no expectations with jeffrey thorne's green lantern um but it, I, I didn't feel like it was a good issue so it's it's not i don't like the direction it's heading with just constantly elevating john stewart at the expense of giving us any answers or giving any other Green Lanterns any sort of agency. So well, well it also uh, it, it it does seem to kind of conflict with Future State because with Future State Green Lantern, we, we got the end of this story and there was no indication that John Stewart was a god in Future State that I can recall anyway, but but I, I don't know, maybe I'll have to go reread it. But it just it doesn't quite seem there's not quite I'm not seeing the consistency there, so that that just adds to my confusion, which should not be the case. But I don't know. Maybe maybe it's going to come. Maybe it's going to be explained more in future issues. We'll have to wait and see. I guess. I hope so. I would love nothing more than for than for Jeffrey Thorne to prove me wrong. You know, for him to do something with John Stewart that's never been done before and make me fall in love with John Stewart. And it's not that I dislike John Stewart. I like John Stewart a lot. He's not my favorite Green Lantern. How? Hal Jordan is is the character that made me fall in love with Green Lantern. He was the first Green Lantern I read. I loved it, but I was only reading Green Lantern for I think I jumped on like right around one sixty seven or so, um, which was right. I mean, and I think the very first cover that ever made me buy a, a, the solo Green Lantern book, and I, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but. I had read, you know, plenty of Justice League or whatever, and I, I knew who Green Lantern was, especially from the Super Friends cartoon, and I always loved it whenever he showed up as a guest, because uh, he wasn't on there all the time, but the guy that voiced him on the cartoon had such a deep voice, I, I, I loved it. And I remember the one where they were trapped somewhere behind a barrier in space, and Green Lantern and Superman had to merge. Green Lantern used his ring, and 
on the screen, it would flash back and forth. It would Superman's face, Green Lantern's face, Superman's face. So I always loved Green Lantern. The first cover, it was by Dave Gibbons that made me buy the solo Green Lantern book, is the one where Hal Jordan is throwing his ring down, it hits the ground and bounces, and he's telling all the Guardians that are behind him, I quit. That was the yeah. first solo that I got. So yeah. when I started reading Green Lantern, it was during that Dave Gibbons uh, era, and I, I wish I could remember who was writing it at the time. It's a, it's a big name guy. I'll look it up here in a second. But that was when John Stewart took over and he stopped being Green Lantern. He, he revealed himself to the world. He was going out with that black reporter, had the Predator, Star Sapphire and all that kind of stuff leading up to 200. So I read plenty of John Stewart, but he wasn't my my favorite Green Lantern and never has been. And I know for some people he is because they came into the Justice League through the Justice League Unlimited or John Stewart. They wanted to add diversity, whatever. So it's not like I dislike John Stewart. I, and I actually like that original John Stewart first where he was an architect and it didn't have the Marine background more because that was what I originally fell in love with. Yeah. But to have this John Stewart as a God shoved down my throat, it, it's just, I just don't have the love <laughs> of John Stewart. Like a lot of, like a lot of people do. Um, but, but I like him well enough. And, and like I said, I, I hope that Jeffrey Thorne changes my mind. I'd love nothing more than that. So uh, anyway, let's move on. I don't have a lot to say about the next title. It's Bean Robin from Robin's Number One by Tim Seeley. The art is by Baldemar Rivas. Romulo Fajardo Jr. does the colors. Steve Wan's on letters. So this is the title that won the DC Round Robin, which wasn't really a round robin, but rather a single elimination tournament where you voted uh, or people voted, fans voted. And this was the one that won. Um, and it, it's it's hard for me to separate the fact that there were so many interesting concepts in that tournament that we could have gotten. And what we got was another Batman adjacent title. And so I know I'm biased. Uh, I'm a fan of Tim Seeley. I like Tim's writing. I know Tim personally. I would consider him, uh, you know, an acquaintance or maybe even a friend. So I, I don't want to like diss on this book and say that it's terrible because it's not. It's got some, re it's a really interesting concept in a way but man i it's hard for me to separate my disappointment with getting another batman title when we already have so much batman from dc and we had a chance to have something different uh that being said uh, i i do like this concept of the robins the different robins dick grayson stephanie brown damian tim drake uh jason todd they're sitting around at a table and they're talking about what it meant to them to be Robin and how it wasn't always sunshine and daisies. And um, it, it wasn't, you know, glamorous and it wasn't what people on the outside looking in would think as, as this incredibly positive experience. And apparently there's somebody that considers themselves the original Robin, even before Dick Grayson. So that's sort of the mystery. So I do like this idea of, these lesser characters, are, and when I say lesser characters, I mean lesser in terms of they're not Batman. This isn't Batman's perspective on each of these individual characters. It's these individual characters, these individual Robins giving us their opinion, their experience, what it meant for them to be Robin. Uh, and it's it, it tends to be a lot darker and, and less positive experience than you might necessarily expect, especially when you start talking about just about every one of them, with the exception of Jason Todd, 
kind of campaigned to be Robin. Tim Tim Drake certainly put like, I know you're Batman. You got to make me Robin. I mean, it was his lifelong long dream. Same thing with Stephanie Brown. You know, she actively campaigned to be Robin. Dick Grayson, we're reading it right now in Robin and Batman about how he wanted to get out there and, you know, avenge his parents' death by fighting crime. So, and, and certainly Damien, it, it's more egocentric for him. It's that he thinks he's better than everybody else. So why wouldn't he be Robin? And he sees that as the natural stepping stone to replacing his father someday. So with the exception of Jason Todd, they campaigned for this. And it may be a situation where it's like, be careful what you wish for. So the concept is interesting. I, I just, I'm disappointed that it won. Um, and not that because I don't want to read the story, but because I'm disappointed that I don't get the other stories because some of them sounded really interesting. As far as the art goes, uh, it's a little anime style from Baldemar Rivas. I'm not familiar with his artwork. Um, it works well enough. The storytelling is solid. He's a little light on the backgrounds uh, at times. So uh, I think the art is is good, not great. So um, anyway, what do you think, Rocky? I, I'm not going to be as kind as you on this. I, I <laughs> First of all, I 100% agree with you. Oh, what, what a stain on DC and on uh let me just uh i'm gonna not well i was gonna say i'm, I'm i don't want to get any hatred from fellow uh youtubers <laughs> watching this or on your channel but i mean uh it sure doesn't say a lot about dc that this one it just doesn't i mean really i mean of all we don't have enough robin i mean we bitch about enough batman we have more than enough robin we got so many robins and this one this is pathetic and i have i also have no interest in this story whatsoever this says absolutely nothing new and to make it even worse i'm sorry to say this is called robin so this storyline is introducing us to another robin oh we need another female robin i guess we we got a bunch of white guys as robin we got a white female so let's add another robin in there why and this we're gonna get a new one that's even before dick grayson why why would i want that i don't want that another another changing of the guard because uh because you want to diversify the cast and you want to check off a box that's what it feels like to me i mean the the fact that this was i mean even the concept of this story introduced in the contest and the round robin to begin with in my view was contrived and in my view probably editorially driven that's how cynical i am uh, on this topic but um I admit to my cynicism and I could be completely wrong and, and so be it. Uh, I don't, uh, I, I also don't, I'm not a big fan of the art here. I don't, I, I don't think, I, I Celia understands these characters enough that I could tell, like Celia does a, did a good job here, uh, you know, writing the characters, you know, and, and getting to the, 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 the gist of, 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 of all the Robins, of Stephanie Brown, of, of Damien, Tim Drake, Jason Todd, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so it's all well and good, but this says nothing new. It says nothing new about any of the characters. In fact, I'm almost afraid it does say something new because I don't want it to. I don't want it to. I don't want another Robin. Who asked for another Robin? I mean, and then and then if you tell me that, well, it won the contest... No, the the title Robins won the contest. Uh, that doesn't necessarily need we need another Robin. So I think the the wrong, I mean, the wrong story. There's so many things wrong here. It just has me shake my head. Um, as far as the story, I mean, the 
this this is part one of I don't know this is a six part I mean six issues of this six issues of Robins chasing after a a female Robin who doesn't wear a mask but just wears a lot of mascara around her eyes. There is nothing about this storyline that interests me. Uh, it it also stars Anarchy, who obviously I'm not even sure it's in continuity. Anarchy was recently killed in the pages of Batman, so I'm not even sure. Uh, so. So, I mean, there's not even concern about that after all. Why would there be a concern? Because this was a story that won around Robin tournament. Um, and I almost feel like they're almost, they feel perhaps obligated to, to, to publish it. Uh, in any event, I know I'm being harsh and I don't, this, I'm not trying to, I like Tim, I'm, I'm starting to like Tim Seeley's writing more, especially with his Superman and Lobo and stuff. Um, uh, but this is a miss for me. I'm avoiding this like the plague and I hope the fans do it as well. I mean, I, I'm sorry. I just, we need another Robin like we need a hole in the head. And that's just how I feel. No, you're you're 100% right. Um, I'm not, I'm curious enough. That, okay, there's a very first Robin. Okay, I, I need about one sentence to tell me what that's about and I'll be good. <laughs> I'm more in, I'm more interested in, in the other Robin sitting around complaining about being Robin, but that we may have already gotten all we're going to get out of that. I guess we'll, we'll wait and see. So yeah, but yeah something, something else would have been better to have won, but. We said that at the time, <laughs> you know, we were pretty, both pretty disappointed. So, uh, okay. Well, I wish I could say on to bigger and better, but <laughs> on, how about on to the next is what I'll say. <laughs> Probably can guess what it is just by that statement. Uh, it's not checkmate. We're not subjected to the torture of checkmate this week, but we do have a justice league issue. Number 69 from writer, Brian, Michael Bendis pencils are by Phil Hester inks by Eric Gapster colors by hi-fi letters by Josh Reed. And, um, before I just, I'm going to try to contain my rant. I'll, I'll let you go first, Rocky. Did you dislike this as much as I did? <laughs> yeah. So you, you want me to rant first? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Right. Maybe it's well, me from, I, I'll just I don't say wanna, dinner. I don't, we'll move on. I don't want to steal any of your thunder, my friend. <laughs> well, look, uh, Bendis's Justice League uh, continue, continues to befuddle me. Uh, I actually looked at uh, I I looked up synonyms for confuse me because I didn't want to say I was confused again or or pissed off again. So, but I'm befuddled. I'm just befuddled. I like that word, so I'm just gonna say I'm befuddled. But we have a bunch of fake death strokes, and thank God the Justice League is you know they know how to handle all these fake death strokes. We got Lois Lane's brother uh, Leonardo Lane, who is the snowman's ticket here in Justice League, and uh, um, this issue is called the biggest score ever. And uh, this is the, the Justice League, along with the agents of Checkmate, now are interrogating these fake death strokes. And the highlight of this issue would appear to be uh, Hippolyta using her magic lasso on these fake death strokes to figure out, you know, what's going on. And uh, it appears to be some misdirection. So, what is what seems to be taking place here is what the Justice League discover after all they're investigating in this issue, is that uh, there is, there's multiple things happening in the world. Not only were all the intelligence agencies taken out, but apparently missions have come out of uh, the Silicon Valley Brain Trust. Uh, the, uh, people were commissioned to create a New World Order algorithm. Uh, the intention was to create a New World Order, and uh, the, these fake deathstrokes were recruited by a woman on Wall Street. And, and even the Royal Flush Gang was, was sort of brainwashed into believing into what Leviathan had to say. And 
All of this stuff, the fake Deathstroke, the Lois Lane's brother, the Royal Flush Gang, Silicon Valley, New World Order, Wall Street agents. This is all part of an elaborate ruse, maybe, or some misdirection. Batman thinks it might be misdirection. Bones of Checkmate, might. Director Bones thinks it might all be misdirection. Where is this all headed? I mean, Leviathan seems to be playing all these different games. And, and the issue ends with the Fortress of Solitude being stolen. It just literally disappears. Oh my God, what's happening? <laughs> it's like so much, so much talking head in this issue. And I'm thinking like so much happens. And at the end of this issue, I'm thinking, who cares? One of the things that I find really odd about this, uh, of, of all the nonsense that happens, there's actually a scene here uh, where the Justice League calls upon Hippolyta to use the magic lasso on one of these fake Deathstroke individuals to try to get to the bottom as to who hired him. Well, Bendis has no idea. And I, there's no other person to blame here other than the writer. Because I couldn't, I can't, because I know if Hippolyta is written correctly, Hippolyta knows how the magic lasso works. Here's a spoiler alert. When you wrap a magic lasso around somebody, they're compelled to tell the truth. And they have to answer the question. This guy doesn't do that here. Not only when, when Hippolyta wraps the magic lasso around this guy, he hallucinates and he sees Batman as a demon and he sees Director Bones as a demon and he sees Black Adam as a demon. That's not what the magic lasso does. The magic lasso compels the truth. And yet, apparently, I don't know, did Bendis tell Phil Hester that this new ma that the magic lasso creates terror and terrorizes those people? It doesn't do that. It compels the truth. And this is, I mean, just little things like that. This is the stuff that, that these are the little Bendis-y Bendis stuff things that annoy me. You know, I can get, I've, I've become accustomed to the dialogue. And maybe you can rant about the dialogue because we can talk about how this dialogue goes on and on and on and, and reveals very little. But it's these little things where a magic lasso is used and she, they literally ask this guy, he's wrapped in the, la in the lasso. And Director Bones asks him, what's your name, son? And he doesn't answer the question. He says, I'm ex-DEO. I used to work for you. You didn't answer the question. You didn't answer the question. You didn't answer it truthfully. You didn't say your name. He asked you your name. It's little things like that. Now, it's attention to detail like that, that you might think I'm nitpicking. But, you know, again, like he's, this guy would say his name. And... It's little things like that, and and we're we're not getting any answers here, and and then the answers we are given, it's suggested that well they don't really mean anything, you know, and it seems like it's being pushed toward an end, and I'm not even sure what it is. Not to mention the fact that Superman is still part of the Justice League. I thought he's supposed to be in War World, so the continuity is all wonky. Which of course, I guess, as a current DC reader, I guess. You know, there isn't even clearly editorially at DC right now. It, continuity is just thrown to the wind. And you know what? Fine, whatever. I can I can reconcile that with my own headcanon. I can figure that out. I can. You can still tell good stories that are out of whack and with continuity. You know, that's fine. Give me a good story, even if it's out of continuity or, or it's wacky, doesn't line up. I can still enjoy it. I can still I can still enjoy a good Grant Morrison story, even if it completely warps continuity. You know, that's it, not a big deal. I can reconcile that. But uh, the, the nonsense here, I just, this just feels, 
this just feels so forced. I, it feels out of whack. It feels like it's going nowhere. It's not making any sense. And I'm sad to say, but Phil Hester, our, Phil Hester's heart here is it's it's complemented by gorgeous colors. Uh, I'm not sure who the colorist is, but the colorist did a really good job. It, the colorist works really well with Phil Hester's art. It maximizes Phil Hester's art, but if Phil Hester's art just doesn't work for me here. This is a Justice League title, and it doesn't feel epic enough. And I story-wise, this just isn't working for me. So, so give me your rant now, Jace. Oh my God, so so <laughs> so bad. You're right about the words, um, and I feel like. At least Bendis, apparently he's aware of it. I think Bendis needs to put this in every single book that he writes because uh, he does it every time. There's a scene like like you're mentioning where they're about to – because you're 100% right about the lasso. The lasso is on the person. They tell the truth. End of story. This isn't some big mystery. Oh, he's got psychic blocks, whatever. It doesn't matter. That's what the lasso – that's the whole point, right? <laughs> this guy's a trained operative. Checkmate, checkmate, checkmate. Like Bendis, if you want to write checkmate, and we know you are, go write checkmate. Stop t trying to tell a checkmate story in Justice League because it doesn't work. This is garbage. This is horrible. It doesn't make sense. It's convoluted. But getting back to what I was saying, okay, so that we're going to put the lasso around you, and that's not enough. That's not the way the lasso works. Guess what? It is the way the lasso works. But in Bendis's mind, it doesn't. So there's this back and forth gibberish between <laughs> Oliver Queen and Black Canary, and they're talking about, oh, we're tricking you, and, you know, we thought, I thought, whatever. Word vomit. Yes, you're right, Bendis. It is word vomit. That's all you ever do. That's all you ever do is word vomit. And then at another point, somebody says, and we don't even know who it is because they're talking off panel. Yeah, we just barge right in and uncharacteristically babble your face off. Well, if it's a Bendis comic, it's not very uncharacteristic. It's very characteristic. There's so many word balloons that it doesn't even necessarily matter that this Phil Hester art is below his usual standards because he can't see it anyway. It's all covered up with word balloons. The story goes nowhere. You're right about, you know, Superman and that not making any sense. And then I guess Bendis thought it would be funny. Hey, I'm going to have hot girl uh, smack Superman in the face with, with my mace. That'll be fun, right? Like, it's like he doesn't – he forgot how to write. I mean I was never the biggest Bendis fan anyway, but it's almost like he gets like one little idea and one little idea and one little idea, and he doesn't know how to string them together to make a coherent story. So it's just – this incongruous one little fun idea to the next little fun idea to the next little fun idea, but they're not even fun ideas. They're old and they're tired and gags. Like, like I said, Superman being smacked in the face by a uh, hot girl. Oh, I hate to do this. Sorry. Thump and hits him with her, her mace. Like, who is this for? What is this? Like, it's so bad. It is so, it's so amateurish. I, I honestly don't – like I don't know. Again, I've never been the biggest Bendis fan. Didn't read all this Marvel stuff or whatever. But when I read this, I wonder – I question how the guy got the name that he got. Like supposedly he was one of the best writers. Like I don't – he didn't – so he used to know how to write. Am, am I right in thinking that? Am I wrong in thinking – like I, I just don't – I don't get it. What is the point of the story with the fake Deathstrokes and the, the checkmate shoved down our throat? Now the Royal Flush Gang and there's some mysterious, uh, you know, movement or or some big head cheese behind all this. To, oh, uh, Leviathan's not doing a good job. They created this vacuum, but now there's another super secret 
clandestine intelligence agency or what that's going to take the place of the vacuum because Leviathan didn't take it back. Like, wait, what? <laughs> it doesn't It doesn't make any sense, you know? And similar to the complaint I have had about Green Lantern, it's just one question after another question after another. Like, I was hoping at least Checkmate, that miniseries is going to end and Checkmate could go away because it's not good at all. If anything, it if anything could be worse than Justice League, perhaps Checkmate is. Although, God, this issue, like as soon as I, even while I was reading it, I was being pulled out of the story by how bad it was. Yeah. And at the end, the Fortress of Solitude is stolen. Well, wait, what? Okay, that might be somewhat of an interesting concept. But if you're going to tell a story about the Fortress of Solitude being stolen, my argument there is going to be, that's a Superman story. You need Superman around. He's not on Earth right now. What is he even doing in this comic? Yeah. It's just, it's all kinds of bad. This is one of the worst comics I've read in, in quite a while. It It's just plain awful. Just awful. Yeah. I don't well, understand. Like, Justice League is supposed to be the linchpin of the DCU. I, I would argue that Batman pays the bills. Superman... As the Superman titles go, so goes the DCU overall. People seem to be enjoying Superman titles and their high quality. I feel like the DCU is doing well. And Justice League is the book that ties it all together. That is not the case right now. This is just bad. I, I got. I can't think that people are buying this and the sales on this are any good whatsoever. It's so bad. <laughs> it's so bad. Uh, on the plus side, the backup, the Justice League Dark and Night Reborn, uh, from writer Ram V, Sumit Kumar on pencils with uh, Jose Mazar on inks and Ramula Farda Jr. on colors, Rob Lee on letters, was pretty solid. Um, we saw the Upside Down Man manifest himself or itself through Zatanna, which we knew was always a risk because of Zatanna. Back in the days when Justice League Dark, deservedly so, had its own individual title, and we wish it still did, we saw that Zatanna, in order to defeat the Upside Down Man, kind of took him that entity inside herself but every time she uses magic he's that much closer to breaking out and taking over and we see that happens here while we finally find out what merlin has been up to all along um and it's not what everybody thought uh he didn't come here to, to resurrect the dark world rather he came to pull a weapon through uh to i suppose you'd say resurrect a weapon because the weapon that everybody thought long dead and that Merlin has extracted from this dark world to be his Sapphire Knight is Arian. Arian, the sorcerer, the Atlantean sorcerer from the late 70s, early 80s book, uh, which I never read, but would always see on the stands of my local comic shop. But uh, he is now the Sapphire Knight of, of Merlin. So the Justice League Dark definitely has their work cut out for them. Uh, trying to defeat Arian is one of the most powerful magic users ever to exist in the DCU. Uh, also, the the color work, a lot of purples and pinks, uh, is fantastic here from Romulo Fajardo Jr. Really dynamic, kinetic line work from Sumit Kumar. So th this was fantastic, um, and it once again it it makes that first story look so bad in comparison when you get a well crafted, technically well put together comic uh, or story. In the back of the book, just con it makes that first story look even worse. It really does. So, any thoughts on the backup, Rocky? Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I loved, I loved the, the the title of the backup is a Knight Reborn, and I thought it could apply it, it could apply to the the Knight Eternal, which is the thirteenth Knight, 
when she she looks pretty cool, uh, all decked out with uh, Atlantean armor and the Atlantean sort of like magical breathing apparatus on her head, and of course the resurrection of the uh, of Orion, a son of Atlantis. I always think of Orion, Lord of Atlantis, because I collected that series back in the day, yeah. and I'm really curious as to how uh, Orion is going to end up being a bad guy, because I don't. Orion is not the type of person that would let himself be controlled by Merlin. So Merlin must have another trick up his, his sleeve. So how is Merlin controlling Orion, Lord of Atlantis? Or he calls him Orion, the sorcerer, God King of Atlantis. So obviously I, I, I know that uh, Orion has had some of his history built upon even by Scott Snyder back in the, uh, during uh, just a couple years ago uh, in the build up to, uh, the the tier of extinction uh, Orion was was part of that was one of the original keepers of the tier of extinction one of those seven forces of the uh, of of the multiverse which uh, is is a callback to then but in any event I I I really I'm really intrigued here I like what Ram V is doing and you know you know just as a compliment to Ram V and oh, kudos to Sumit Kumar on the art here it's fantastic and there's something there's a that double page spread here with uh, the upside down man. Uh, which uh, I can't do it justice on for those watching on YouTube, but the upside down man with uh, Zatanna being possessed by him. I mean, the visuals here just are truly epic and fantastic. And it looks really great on my iMac here when, when I'm looking at it on a 27-inch screen. It's just gorgeous. But I I, I really... Uh, Ram V has, has, has... You know, he tells... He can tell really good, strong, character-driven stories, like whether it's Catwoman... Uh, or, um, uh, oh God, Lord, uh, uh Swamp, Thing. Swamp Thing, thank you. And here we have, we got many more players in the cast. And so he's, he's doing a good job here too. And even when, even if one could argue, I mean, I mean, first of all, I think he does a good job handling all these characters in this Justice League backup, but he, he doesn't like, he doesn't puke out a bunch of useless dialogue because He's not like Bendis, as you can compare it to the the first part. Bendis, if Bendis has ten players on a page, Bendis will have them all engage in "Hi, hello, it, what?" It, like he'll he'll make them all utter something stupid just so just so a dialogue balloon can cover up the art. Ram V. Every time there's a a character says something, it's relevant and it has a point. Ram V understands the importance of dialogue and the importance of when not to use it and let the artist do his job. And I mean, it's just, it's just masterful. And, you know, I can't wait when there's a collection of this series. I hope that they separate Justice League Dark from the main Justice League proper because I would love to collect this as a trade paperback, just Ram V's Justice League Dark because it, it really does come across, uh, come across that well. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. Uh, okay. Up next, we have Batman versus Big Me, A Wolf in Gotham, number three, from writer Bill Willingham. Brian Level handles the interior arts and does the variant cover as well. Jay Leistein on the inks. Lee Luffridge does colors. Uh, Steve Wands on letters. Um, I, so I am enjoying this, but, you know, we've talked in the past. I haven't read any of Fable, so I know I'm not getting as much out of the story as some others who've, who've read it. Um, but I did... I almost felt like I missed an issue <laughs> with what's going on here because all of a sudden this this group of uh, criminals goes and steals a bunch of like bookmobiles from the police <laughs> impound and they go and blow up 
various bookstores and the library and private collections. And it's like they're trying to take out books. But then we find out later that apparently if books are passed, packed really densely, that the books aren't actually damaged. So I'm not sure what the heck is going on, but apparently it's all the master plan of somebody called Bookworm. So <laughs> I guess there's that app happening. Uh, again, I just, I'm just not sure, but it is a different, as much as, you know, we talk about, there's so much Batman. This is a different take on Batman. He is a little bit harsher, a little bit more no nonsense. This Batman that exists in the world of, of fables. Um, and so I do like that, that it's a little bit of a different take on Batman. You know, if I have to read a Batman book, at least give me something a little different. Uh, the artwork from Brian Level is, is fantastic, especially the double page spread where the library explodes. Uh, and beautiful colors as well. Uh, he also does something interesting with the panels, uh, like when Batman goes to meet with Commissioner Gordon on top of the police de department, we get four panels in a row, and the panels are shaped like a G, a, G, a C, a P, and a D for Gotham City Police Department. So th yeah. that's interesting. Later on, there's a, another panel that's kind of shaped like a battering. So at least he's keeping it interesting. Um, but again, I, I know that this is not a series for me because I'm not a big fan of fables and, and I've never read it. So I'm not getting as much out of it. Um, but like I said, yeah, different different take on Batman. Um, and if I had any nitpick, it's that this different take on Batman, he's, he's so stubborn that he kind of doesn't see the forest for the trees, which doesn't really say Batman to me. I mean, Batman's pretty intelligent, um, but he's still convinced that the wolf, uh, who he knows he has talked to, uh, that happened last issue. And then that's how the beginning of this issue starts with them in their civilian guises talking. I just feel like he would have realized that the, that big B is a good guy by this point. Right. And he, and he wouldn't still be out to kill the, the wolf, which he claims to still be uh, wanting to do to Gordon. Um, so yeah, uh, that's the one part of it where I'm like, really? He hasn't yeah. um, figured that out yet. Cause I feel like he would have, but uh, anyway, I know, I know you've read Fables, Rocky, so you're probably better uh, suited to critique this than I am. What did you, what did you think? <laughs> well, well, first of all, let me apologize. Uh, it's For some reason, it's not coming up on my feed, that, that particular issue. I I've, I've keep reloading it here, so I apologize for those watching. I usually we, we like to show some pages, but in any event, uh, for Batman v. Big V here, uh, w all that happens in this issue, last issue ended with uh, Big B can... Uh, the big bad wolf, Big B, confronting Bruce Wayne at a gala, and then that issue ended with an explosion. And this carries on from the second issue. And so all all that we've had is a series of explosions. And there's a total of eight explosions that have taken place throughout Gotham. Gotham, usually at particular libraries, and uh, it's a coordinated attack. And it looks as if uh, a lot of these uh, uh, a lot of these libraries consist of private collections uh, in the midst of the, of a literary festival that has been canceled. In the meantime, we got various characters with the names of famous authors like Kipling and Miss Hemingway, and it's uh, we've got all these these buses which are basically mobile mobile buses that deliver mobile books, and and this it looks as if it's all linked to this character Batman villain called Bookworm, and in the meantime, what happens is Batman and Bigby in this issue take off to try to help the people because all of these eight explosions that have taken place all around Gotham have um, uh, caused chaos. And so 
I, I like what Willingham do, do, Willingham has done. He has he he shows some coordination between Batman and all these other Robins, and uh, and meanwhile, Bigby coordinates all the fables, and Cinderella is one of the is sort of like uh, almost like police commissioner Gordon's sidekick or not a sidekick, but another officer. So we've got Batman and Bigby coordinating and helping people. And this big bad wolf is Bigby wolf is helping people. But Batman doesn't, for some, for some reason, Batman doesn't realize that at the end, I think it's a little bit of a misfire by, by Willingham. Uh, Batman, Batman manages to figure a lot out here, but for some reason he still thinks, I mean, you're right when you say Jace that Batman, Batman should know better that for some reason he thinks Big B's behind this or and that's and that Big B's this big bad wolf, which is true, but he's not the villain here. And I would have thought Batman would have been able to figure that out. So uh but not a lot really happens in this issue. We're just it, it's just a lot of explosion, a lot of action, and that really is it. And um so I think this is kind of a filler issue. I I would have so far I'd like to have seen a little bit more of the more of the fables. Uh, artistically, Brian, uh, Brian level, I don't mind his art here. I, I do, uh, you know, I do kind of miss the old, I think it's Mark Buckingham was the artist on the traditional fables. I, I miss his art, but that's just because I'm biased and that's just, he's just, when you think of, uh, when I, when I think of fables, I think of Mark Buckingham and, but in any event, I'm enjoying this and it's, it's worth a look-see, especially if you're a fan of the fables. Yep. Well said. Uh, okay, well, I'll definitely let you go first on this one. I'm I'm curious. We both kind of already expressed our, our disappointment. This is supposedly the finale, the end of Fear State. Now, we know it's a bit of a misnomer because even though it says Fear State finale, we know there's a Fear State Omega, which is kind of a standalone. Uh, you know, we had Fear State Alpha, standalone one-shot to kick it off, and then we have Fear State Omega. Maybe that's where they wrap up the Seer storyline because that's apparently still going on. This is a finale in terms of the magistrate and uh, and Simon Saint. Uh, so it's written by James Tynan. Jorge Jimenez d does the art. Tomei Amore on colors and Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, and I, I read this before I read Nightwing. Maybe that was a mistake. We're covering it before Nightwing because Nightwing, I guess, technically takes place ahead of this. But this is the order that DC sent him to us. So this is the order that I read them in. So uh, what were your thoughts on uh, on Batman 117, Rocky? Um, again, I, I can't, I can't access this. I'm for some reason I can't access any of the comics on the box, but it just keeps trying to load. Uh, I've kept rebooting it, but in any event, I was, I, I just felt this, this thing felt a little bit rushed. It's clear that all these plot lines now have converged for, uh, on this series. And, and unfortunately this it's easy to conclude that this was a series that was probably five or six issues too long uh, because it was obvious that at some point Poison Ivy was going to take control of Gotham, get, gain her, regain her sanity and release some, uh, release some uh, floral or botanical mist that would cure people from the fear state. And that's what she did. And there was just a moment between, uh, there was a there were fans of Harvey uh, of, of fans of Harley and Ivy finally popped up here. Uh, we'll be happy to know that there is a great scene. There is a, a wonderful scene between Harley and Poison Ivy. They they meet up and they they meet up and they they kiss. Simon Saint gets his comeuppance. He gets arrested. Uh, 
the meanwhile Batgirl, Nightwing, Bat, uh, uh, Barbara Gordon, the Stephanie Crane, the Batgirl and Batgirls, and and Damien, they they take out Simon Saint, and meanwhile Batman takes out the peace peacemaker, and or pardon me, peacekeeper, and. Probably the, uh, the the central highlight of the issue, other than I think what most people were waiting for, I, I think probably a lot of people were waiting for that moment between Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy. And I just got to say, the gardener being present here is redundant. I say again, the gardener of all the characters that James Tynion has created, I actually like most of them. I don't like the gardener. A complete waste of a character. I re- reiterate it again. Serves no purpose other than just just she just serves no purpose here and but it was it was nice to see the uh, Harley and Poison Ivy have their moment have their kiss Poison Ivy is back and cuz there was the poison uh, because there was two sides of Ivy there was the poison and then there was the Ivy <laughs> and so now they're merged again she's got her sanity in large part thanks to Harley um there's a moment here and this this what I find interesting there's a moment here that sort of harkens back to when Miracle Molly, we had this Batman Secret Files issue with Miracle Molly, where Miracle Molly essentially, uh, she she had Mister Mind's machine. Uh, just I'm gonna kiss my daughter goodnight here. Um, where Miracle Molly decided to get her mind cleansed and, and and so she could get rid of all the trauma and she could think clearly. And there's a moment here where you know Miracle Molly wants wants to use the mind machine and all the citizens of Gotham and Bruce Wayne doesn't want her to do that. But Miracle Molly feels that Gotham is lost. That that this fear gas, this fear toxin has taken over at this point. Miracle Molly doesn't know that poison Ivy is going to has, is basically going to frankly rescue this, you know, pr- protect the city anyway. And there's this moment where Bruce Wayne hands Miracle Molly, his, his radio receiver or his transceiver and, and, to, to let her know that Gotham is healing itself, that the people are making the right decisions, that Simon Saint has been arrested, that Mayor Nagano has admitted he made a mistake by recruiting the by recruiting and, and working with the magistrate and recruiting Simon Saint. And and Miracle Molly has this moment where she realizes that 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 they don't need this this conversion that that she went through with with uh with her mastermind or whatever that that basically that that the citizens of Gotham had chose the right thing to do and they didn't need to be forced to, to have their trauma taken away like Miracle Molly did. And it sort of reminded me of that scene in the, in the Batman movie with uh, Heath Ledger as the Joker, where the two people were, you know, we had the, 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 the inmates on the boat and the Gotham citizens of Gotham on another boat and, Neither chose to blow up the other. And it's like they, the, the citizens of Gotham here chose the higher path, chose the higher ground. So all is not lost. And Miracle Molly was surprised to see that. And, and so she chose not to essentially force the citizens of Gotham to undergo the therapy that she went through. Which kind of made me realize, why would Batman care? I mean, if Miracle Molly, she seems like a good girl. She seems intelligent. Why not have the citizens of Gotham go through what Miracle Molly did. Why not cleanse them? Seemed to work for Miracle Molly. She seems to be a sensible young girl. She even hugs Batman at the end. I I don't see what the big deal is. 
What's the big deal? Did is what Miracle Molly went through with uh, Mister Mind or whatever the her master win whatever his, her master there is. I, I you know so I thought that there was a little bit of conflict there. I don't know why Batman would care if I mean really I mean. <laughs> If any city should benefit from having their trauma taken from them, you'd think it would be the citizens of Gotham. I would have let Miracle Molly go to town and, and do that. But everything is fine. Fear State has been defeated. It's, you know, the good guys have won. And at the end here, there's a beautiful, uh, there's a beautiful uh, spread here of, uh, you know, Batgirl, Nightwing, The Signal, Damien, you know, Batwoman, Batgirl, spoiler, I guess the Bat Girls, all all of them have won, and it just. But for me, it feels a little bit too conveniently wrapped up. The art here is fantastic, but the the argument with Miracle Molly here, the moment between Bruce Wayne and Miracle Molly, didn't quite hit home. Uh, if if it was so bad, I don't know why Bruce Wayne, Miracle Molly, is more intelligent, and more compassionate than virtually ninety percent of the people of Gotham. At least the way Tinian propped her up in his story. Now, I criticize that story, that Secret file story, but nonetheless, if I take it for what it was trying to project, I don't, you know, Bruce Wayne didn't come up with a very good argument to convince Miracle Molly not to, you know, not to use the, not to use it because, I mean, uh, or, or maybe he did. It, it seemed to have an impact on Miracle Molly. Um, I guess it'll be interesting to hear your take on that. But in any event, I felt it was, a very quick re resolution here. I thought it took way too long to get to this point. I thought it had its moments, this Fear State storyline, but it did drag on too long. The art was fantastic. This will probably sell well on trade paperback, but this did drag on too long. And this ending here doesn't quite, it doesn't quite resonate with me. And it was, we all saw this coming a mile away. It was predictable. It was tropey. And it was, uh, I find, I'm, I'm just, surprised that I, I, I just don't buy it. I just don't buy it. And Bruce Wayne, this moment between Miracle Molly and Bruce Wayne, I've never been, it's never been clear to me that Miracle Molly was this good, sweet girl, but now I guess she is. I always thought she was a little bit off her rocker and I guess she isn't, but I guess she is. If she's not off her rocker and she's fine, why would, why not use the mind, the the mind machine on all of Gotham? What's the big deal? Miracle Molly's fine. I, I don't know. I just, I got all these conflicting sort of feelings on it right now. So I don't know. What do you think? I could not disagree. I could not disagree more yeah. uh, with the whole Miracle Molly. I, like no, it's, I, I'm a hundred percent on, on Bruce Wayne's side. Now, that being said, I'm a huge Miracle Molly fan and I can completely understand her desire to subject the citizens of Gotham to the to the mind machine, right? Like she got a new start and it, and it worked for her, but she lost something like go back to that one shot, that secret files. And, and, and she lost something. Now it may be that what she lost was something that she never wanted in the first place. So in her instance, it, it worked. And when I say that a husband who didn't really love her, didn't pay attention to her in-laws who didn't even seem to like her really. So, you know, if, if it was, yeah, just push a button and the trauma's gone, fine. But when you're talking about the trauma's gone, the trauma's gone because you're about to erase everybody's memory and personality. 
And I would say that's a bridge too far. And I can completely understand why Batman's going to say, no, Miracle Molly, you are not going to erase the memories of every single person in Gotham. That's not the way to solve this problem. That's a little bit like using a nuclear bomb to destroy an anthill. Well, I, right? it's uh, not removing the memories. It's removing the trauma. I don't think Miracle Molly no, no, lost no. her she memories. Right here. No, because that's what was done to Miracle Molly. Remember, she didn't have any memory of who she was before. It erased her personality. So we saw in Secret Files, and she says, now I'm going to set it off and wipe away all of Gotham City's trauma, take away its memories so people can actually start over. So to me, that's going to cause more more problems. Everybody's going to be running around going, wait, I don't remember who I am. I don't remember what relationships I had. That's why when Miracle Molly in, in the Secret Files went in and they were stealing from her husband's family you know they're 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 having dinner the husband recognized her and she was like well maybe i knew you before maybe not because she doesn't have those memories anymore so that's what the mind machine does right like it wipes away everything yeah i I never Um, got that impression from this i thought if she recognized her husband i thought she was uh but but no no, yeah in the secret file she never said she recognized him she he recognized her and she said well if that's the case you know i'm not the person you knew because again she she started over it it worked for her I don't think it would work for everybody. I'm not surprised. Yeah. That no, I don't. I don't disagree with you. I just thought. Yeah. Uh, I just thought that Miracle Molly doesn't seem like a bad person. So I mean, I, I guess no, that's no. why. I, if she was I evil, don't... I would. I could see Batman being concerned about it. But she just seemed like, you know, she seems like no, a well-adjusted well, kid. Yeah. To me, that's what makes it work even more. Well, and first of all, she's not a. Kid. That's the other part, and we talked about that during Secret Files as well. I mean, she's a 30-year-old <laughs> yeah. woman. She's not even a kid, but she comes across really young and whenever she's in Batman, as opposed to the secret files where, yeah. you know, she, again, she was a graduate student in computer science and, you know, was well on her way to her career. So late, late twenties at the youngest, but she comes across as, as much younger. And I think that's the whole point, you know, Batman doesn't attack her uh, because he knows at her core, she is a good person and he knows he can get through to her, especially when he removes his mask, which to me says a lot. Uh, I mean, she already knows he's Bruce Wayne. She already figured that out. She's a she's a fascinating character, and if anything, uh, this issue and and her desire, like, it's not that she wants to harm anybody. She's going to erase all the memories of people in Gotham. It works for her, and she wants to give that same fresh start to everybody else. It's her desire to do it is a is out of compassion and out of wanting the best for everybody. But when Bruce talks to her about having another path talking about the capacity for the incredible good that humans can do, you know, take away the divisiveness, take away the politicians and the media and the corporations telling people what to think and how to overcome their fears uh, and just concentrate on who the people are. You can see how much it affects Molly. She clearly has a good heart. And of course, obviously once she, you know, plugs in and and sees that everybody's already um, overcoming that, and she sees Nakano, who should immediately be recalled and never be allowed to hold public office ever again because the guy's a total <laughs> moron. Uh, like, what an idiot, like we said from the beginning. Um, so, yeah, she she sees right away. She's touched by what she sees. You know, those tears coming right away. So in terms of that, that's where the story works best. And and I, I did enjoy that aspect of it. Um but the problem is, like you said, Rocky, and even I think Tynan said in his uh, newsletter, which I've talked about at various times, because he's talked about his whole journey of being the Batman writer at DC and talking. This is this is a bigger event, and this was editorial 
he had this idea and DC editor was like, Oh, let's make it big. Let's make it this big event with all this crossover or whatever. I don't think his initial idea was worthy of all this real estate um, and didn't need it. And so often we're go the other way, right? Like we're like, we're talking about how maybe the story's choppy or the pacing is a little too fast because there's not enough real estate on the page. This is the opposite problem where things are stretched out and then it loses impact, right? Like, and this goes back to, to future state Gotham with the magistrate being in charge in, in the future, in the, the future state Batman and the future state detective comics. And then when we got this fear state and we saw just how incompetent Nakano was, and we saw to some extent how Simon St. You know, he had this idea of magistrate and this fascist group, this fascist power structure to take over Gotham. But in at no time did I ever see Saint as being intelligent or formidable enough to pull this off. He seems somewhat like a limp noodle throughout this entire uh, series. He never comes across as menacing or a real danger or a threat. <laughs> you know, much like I talk about the Joker all the time, if, if Batman were real and the Joker were real, were real, Batman defeated him about 30 seconds. It might take only 10 seconds to defeat Simon Saint. And honestly, that's what we see here. He's no match for the Bat family. And it, it really should never even gotten to the point that it did. And certainly wouldn't have if it wasn't for the fact that Nakano's a, a total idiot. So I think that's where it loses some of the impact. Um, so kind of narratively, it's a little bit of a ending with a whimper. But emotionally, with that Miracle Molly scene, um, I think it did what it set out to do. Again, we still have the Omega issue to, I guess, wrap up even more, tie up the other storylines. I guess, I guess we'll I forgot see. about that. Yeah. Yeah. So even though this is called finale, we still have one more chapter of the story. We'll see yeah. how that all plays out. We'll talk about Nightwing here in a minute. Um, but just a last word on the art. Yeah. I mean, Jorge Jimenez, despite the fact that I've talked about his Batman art being a little more frenetic and a little more, I get, cause he's trying to make it gritty cause it's Batman as opposed to like his justice league work or his Superman super sons work. Um, the, you know, it, I still love the art and he does an incredible job, especially in that emotional scene with Miracle Molly and Bruce, like some of the best emotional angst and, um, and kind of, uh, impact that I've ever seen Jorge Jimenez give us on a page. So, Art is absolutely fantastic in this in this issue. Um, yeah. So yeah, I guess we'll see how it all wraps up. And uh, yeah, in, and we we should say we're going to be talking about Nightwing 80, issue eighty six, which actually ties into this. And yeah. another criticism, I guess, I realize we're talking about the Bat books; they're all connected. But really, the the taking down of Simon Saint, if if you really want the details of it, you really do need to read Nightwing eighty six because it, it, this issue just has Nightwing and Barbara Gordon and the rest of the bad crew show up and take out Simon Saint, but how they do so is actually in the pages of Nightwing 86. Yeah. That, that should, again, DC sentiments in this order. This is the order we review them in, but you really should read Nightwing 86 first and then read this. But uh, there's also a backup Batgirls three of three and can't hardly wait. Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad as writers, Jorge Corona as artists. Sarah Stern is colorist, Becca Carey doing the letters. I've talked about it before. I'm a big fan of Jorge Corona art, but he should not be doing superhero books. It's too chaotic uh, and it makes it feel really juvenile. And I get that these are supposed to be younger bat characters, but um, it, it doesn't work for me. And, and the other thing about this is it definitely ties in with Fear State, what we've had going on with the Batgirls accused of blowing up the clock tower that was Oracle's hideout or whatever. Um, and it leads into uh, 
Batgirls number one, which we have a preview of that we'll talk about uh, when we, there's a preview in several of the issues of this week's books. And we'll, we'll talk about it when we talk about the next book, King Shark. Um, but it makes me wonder, is Fear State and Omega really going to wrap up the Oracle slash or the anti-Oracle slash Seer storyline? Because apparently not, because it's going to be continued in Batgirls. And yeah, man, it's just not really a story that's resonating with me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I feel like I don't I think like maybe it's not supposed to. This definitely feels like it's aimed at a younger audience, especially with choosing Jorge Corona on art. It's a stylized anime, visceral anime style, I'll almost call it, or animated style. Um, this is not a, you know, a characterization of Cassandra Kane or Stephanie Brown that I enjoy. Uh, and the colors, a lot of purples and pinks and what have you. So really feels like it's aimed at about a 12-year-old girl, <laughs> which yeah. is clearly, is this... not, clearly not me. So it's it's not bad. It's not a technically bad comic in any sense. It's just not offering anything new for me. Uh, not characterizations of, of these characters who I've been reading about for decades now yeah. uh, that I enjoy. They're, they're just not, these aren't the versions of these characters that speak to me. So that's all I'll say about it. Yeah. And uh, I agree with you on, on the Batgirls back up here. Uh, Cassandra Kane uh, is my favorite DC character. Uh, she no longer is. She's not even in my top fifty anymore. This this iteration is horrible. This is such a complete, total, utter insult to the character. There's nothing. When I thought it, when I think of Cassandra Kane, the last thing I think of is a teeny bopperish thing hanging out with Stephanie Brown of all people. Stephanie Brown, which is a character I've always hated. I was glad when she was killed off. I didn't want her to return. She did. Uh, the only reason that she returned was because they wanted to salvage the character of Leslie Tompkins, who in the original storyline written by Bill Willingham killed off Stephanie. Crane, the spoiler, uh, he actually blamed the death on Leslie Tompkins, uh, who killed, uh, who under the reasoning had killed off a spoiler in order to get back at Batman and to teach Batman a lesson. And it was such a terrible thing to do with, Ste with Leslie Tompkins that there was such fan backlash that spoiler eventually returned. And, uh, and also Dan Didio likes spo uh, spoiler. Uh, which uh, can pretty much tell you all kinds of things right there, but <laughs> does, he, does, he, does he though? Well, I yeah, yeah, I don't know. That's that's a topic for another day. I, I say yeah. that with love to, to Dan Didio because I, I actually find myself missing Dan Didio at times here. But yeah, I this is just this is an iteration of the character, and you said it very diplomatically, and I'm going to share your diplomacy and say that these these are this is an iteration of these two characters that respectfully is clearly not written for me. I wanted more. I want a more sophisticated take on Cassandra Kane. She is the daughter of Lady Shiva, but they're also bastardizing the characterization of Lady Shiva, in my view, in, in, lately. And they're they're missing out on a mysterious, vibrant uh, lady of mystery, powerful, mar mysterious martial arts master, Lady Shiva. She's got this daughter who, in my view, ought to be uh, either autistic or deaf or in, unable to speak. Uh, instead, they've made Cassandra Kane. They've made her. They've given her the ability to speak. To they, all this stuff now, that the, the stuff that made Cassandra Kane unique when she first came around, uh, she's now just another glorified martial artist, and uh, there's nothing interesting about her. And when you got her friend like Spoiler, and you're rooming together, and you're gonna like party together, and this is like a sorority, uh, this is awful. This is just this is the last thing that I'm interested in. So I'm definitely out. Also, let me just say this. 
does anybody actually think that Batman at the end of Fear State is going to allow Seer, a character like Seer, that actually contributed to Fear State? Fear State's not over if Seer's still around. You you think Batman's going to leave it to a Batgirls? These Batgirls are going to take out the Seer? Please. This is just, this is contrived, and this is just sad, and it's pathetic. And it just doesn't work for me, and I'll just, that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> Wait, yeah, you said you're going to be diplomatic, and then you really laid it all out there. Yeah. Which is, which <laughs> then I turned great. into an a hole. <laughs> I loved, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, basically, you took away what was interesting about Cassandra Kane, her struggles to to speak and to communicate because of the way she was raised to be a living weapon, and you've turned her into you've turned her into an emo girl. That's basically it. Like, expect to hear her reciting Cure lyrics or something at any moment. So. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, another Tim Seeley written book. We're uh, up to Suicide Squad, King Shark number three, written by Tim Seeley. Art is by Scott Collins. John Kalis does the colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Um, I know, you know, obviously with the popularity of King Shark and the Suicide Squad movie, that's what this is all about. It's about this tournament for different avatars. King Shark obviously being the avatar for sharks, going up against avatars for, for other kingdoms. Uh, he goes up against... Uh, or there's there's a human uh, avatar. He has defeated the uh, the bird avatar, um, and he's about to go up against yeah. the Easter Bunny. He he kills the Easter Bunny, <laughs> yeah, ba- ba- basically, which is yeah, which is pretty funny. I mean, literally comes. Up, it's like it's like the scene out of um, Deep Blue Sea where Samuel Jackson gets gets bitten half uh, and, and defeats the the hair prince of the undergrowth. Uh, yeah. And he's defeated, like I said, the the avatar of of the of the bird kingdom, and uh, now he's going up against uh, what is she, queen of of tigers or something like that? Uh, yeah, queen tiger. Uh, so it, it's an interesting enough uh, idea. It's it's almost like talking animal avatar type uh, characters mixed with like Bloodsport, you know, the John Claude Van Damme movie. Uh, with, meanwhile, we've got uh, Amanda Waller who wants to get King Shark back because uh, he was promised to be a you know a member of Suicide Squad and he's he's kind of absent without leave. So she's got her own team that she's trying to send in uh, to to bring him back. So it's fun. It's over the top. Uh, I'm not a big King Shark guy, but if you're a big fan of King Shark, uh, the characterization that Tim Seeley gives us is, from what I understand, is pretty similar to the characterization from the movie, even though I haven't seen it. So, uh, again, this is what they're trying to capitalize on. And I think it's working for the most part. Um, I've talked about the Scott Collins artwork before. It, it sort of works because he's not drawing people. He's drawing um, animals, basically, in, in humanoid form. And that does sort of work. Uh, otherwise, for me, Scott Collins art really only works with the Flash because his art is just so scritchy and kinetic. It Everybody looks like they're vibrating out of their skin. Um which works when you're not drawing people, but when you're drawing people, it doesn't always work the best. So, uh, so this is okay. Again, I'm not the biggest King Shark fan, so I'm probably not the target audience on this, but it's uh, it's fun enough. Dialogue is smart, technically a well put together book. So, anything to add, Rocky? 
Uh, yeah, I, I want to give compliments to John Callis, uh, the the colorist. Uh, they really po- the color the coloring is fantastic. Scott Collins, I'm not not usually a big fan of his art, even when he's on the Flash, but it actually works here with King uh, King Shark. I'm gonna give Tim Seeley another compliment. I've always found him to be serviceable, but he's impressed me with Superman Lobo. I there's a couple of moments here in this issue where again I was laughing and a couple of laugh out loud moments for me. I don't know if Tim Seeley he's just managed to you know find my my funny bone, but. I love the fact that uh, that uh, uh, Defacer she ends up sleeping with uh, Man King, and uh, it's kind of funny because uh, she's sleeping with Man King, and and she agreed in last issue to basically to she Man King wanted her to wanted Defacer to find a way to to get to get under King Shark's skin so so that it would give Man King a, an advantage in in battle at some point, but of course it was the Baby Shark song and the Baby Shark song. Unfortunately, it makes King Shark go ballistic, and of course, he defeats his he defeats all his opponents, and he takes out the Easter Bunny here. I guess is King Bunny of some kind, and uh, he takes out Princess Peregrine, the Duke of Donkeys. There's a long uh, uh, writer uh, Tim Seeley here is doing a lot of anthropomorphizing. I I, I know I said that word wrong. I I'm, I'm not going to try to say it again. Anthropomorphic characters everywhere, and he's having fun with it. Uh, I like the fact that there's uh, there's there's sex, there's humor, there's violence. Of course, this is going to be a King Shark issue, and he eats the Easter Bunny, or at least what I'm calling the Easter Bunny. This is a fun issue, all right? Uh, Tim Seeley is, uh, I think he's actually, he's managing to really entice me with this. Uh, this is uh, it, this is actually fairly interesting, and even Amanda Waller wanting to get in, delving into a uh, lore. Send she sends the Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad Black, uh, in order to retrieve uh, uh, Nanua, uh, Nanu, the the King Shark, and 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 much to great effect here. Uh, I mean, this is um, I'm not sure what to expect, but at, at the end of the day, he ends up fighting. He ends up uh, fighting, I guess, King Tiger, and the King Tiger ends up getting taken off the playing field. But ultimately, uh, King Tiger's uh, namesake or I think mother sort of gives her blessing to King Shark to sort of win the tournament at the end of the day. And uh, I, I'm interested to see where this is going. Uh, this is this is action packed. It's the the art is very kinetic. There's a lot of action. Scott Collins is really good at the action. There's when the when the King Tiger is fighting King Shark, uh, you you I mean there's a lot going on there. And it's a lot of fun and you know, full props. I am, you know, this is, this issue is called eye of the Taggart queen and it works pretty well. Now it seems like he's been transported to another, another place where it looks like there's cockroaches. So again, a lot of crazy animalistic anthropomorphic stuff going on, but there's humor, sex and violence. I mean, what more could you ask for in a King shark comic? Yeah, it's it's pretty solid. We'll see how he handles fighting the Roach King. Uh, I can only imagine what the Roach King is going to look like. So, uh, <laughs> like I said, there is a, a preview of Batgirls number one in a lot of the issues that are coming out. Series starts in December. It's basically the first few pages. It doesn't. I don't even know if we really need to talk about it other than to say it. It's just that same tone because it's the same creative team. It's the same tone that we got in the backup for the Batgirl story in in the Batman title. Um, you know, these different younger characterizations of Cassandra Kane and Stephanie Brown, 
kind of clear about their inexperience. They're, even in the preview couple pages here, they're going after some guys after Barbara Gordon Oracle told them to lay low and, and not engage with anybody. They're ignoring her saying, ah, Babs would understand. Come on, there's two of us. Um, and it's that same artwork from Jorge Corona that's really stylized and, and kind of kinetic and frenetic. So uh, I don't know that we need to, to add any more uh, to what we've already said. So let's yeah. move on. Uh, Nightwing number 86, which is uh, part three of three, Fear State. Tom Taylor's the writer. Robbie Rodriguez is the artist. Adriana Lucas on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Um, I just feel, and I've said this on every issue of the Nightwing Fear State, it's amazing to me how, well, it's not amazing to me, but I guess it's a perfect example of how much influence the artist has on the story because I've absolutely loved Nightwing. It's the argument could be made. It's the best title DC's putting out when Bruno Redondo does it. We got the same writer, Tom Taylor telling the same story. Although, you know, granted his main story that he was telling is being interrupted because he had to tie in with fear state, which is why I always hate these kind of crossovers because it's interrupting the narrative that Tom wanted to tell, but it's still his writing and it's Nightwing has been so good. And now he's got to tie into Fear State, and we get a different artist, Robbie Rodriguez, who in my mind is nowhere near as talented and doesn't give the right tone or the same tone that Bruno Redondo does. And all of a sudden, this title's gone from one of DC's best to pretty damn mediocre during these three Fear State uh, issues. So um, other than that, I don't really have much much to say. Uh, Tom Taylor does try to salvage it with some bits of humor here or there and the character interaction, um, and it, it keeps it from being less than average, but it can't elevate it to be more than, than average. Um, and again, we see or, or the anti-Oracle or Seer escape in uh, at the end of this issue when we're reminded once again to be continued in Batgirl number one. Meanwhile, in Nightwing, back to Bloodhaven. And all I can say is thank God. <laughs> thank God we're going to black, back to Bloodhaven. Thank God we get back to Tom Taylor's story that he wants to tell rather than tying into Tynan's story and we get Bruno Redondo back, back on the book because I've never been a fan of Robbie Rodriguez and uh, I think he was just straight up the wrong choice. I mean, I can't imagine in a, a trade paperback of Nightwing, if you have three issues of what Bruno Redondo does and three issues of this, it's going to feel like a completely different story. Uh, and, and really it is completely different title. Just couldn't be more different. Uh, so I wasn't a fan. I'm I'm really kind of sad that Nightwing had to cross over with Fear State and and interrupt what Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo were doing, which was really quite fantastic. And this is really not. So uh, anyway, I'll let you talk about the story beats or, or whatnot, Rocky, but uh, I'm just glad this is over. Well, there, there's not much of a story here, which adds to my, adds to my disappointment. This is such a, a filler issue. It's It's just so sad to see. This is just uh, this. This isn't a Nightwing comic. This is Fear State. This is another chapter of Fear State because they ran out of real estate in the pages of Batman, which is astonishing when you think of uh, Batman's published twice a month and they still never had enough space. But it was important to have that Batgirls uh, preview in Bat in Batman one seventeen. <laughs> so you know, it, I don't. I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm just I'm just so frustrated. I, I agree with you. Nightwing is was firing on all cylinders. This completely drowned it to a, a standstill. Uh, the art here, Robbie Rodriguez on the art is, uh, 
I mean, his his artistic style is what it is, but it's 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 a jarring change from Redondo. You could absolutely skip these two issues. That's the one saving grace about all this. The good news is that you can absolutely skip uh, this issue of Nightwing and the one before, and you can literally jump. You can literally jump from issues uh, eighty four right to eighty. 87 and skip issues 85 and 86 and you won't miss anything going on in the life of dick grayson um this is really sad to see uh this is this as far as the story beats i mean it's just nightwing barbara gordon and the bat girls get together and they 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 take out a bunch of peacekeepers steal their costume and then go and they take out simon saint that's it and there's a bunch of repertoire and 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 uh you know witty witty dialogue uh between all of them which again tom taylor is good at that he does a good job here of creating a filler issue but make no mistake this is a filler issue and it just you know personally i don't really like you know i didn't get much out of this it didn't uh for all the reasons i'm reading nightwing this was absolutely not one of the reasons i was reading nightwing this is something that they really really need to work on but of course the the DC will never learn. Whenever there's a when there's a bat, whenever there's a bat event, if it's a bat event worth happening, it shouldn't involve every single bat title. If you if it can't, you know, they this was really, really unfortunate. But, you know, again, you know, I've used the phrase lipstick on the pig. Yeah, that's what this was. It was you can absolutely skip this issue. You get nothing out of it. Uh on last issue you could have skipped it too. Yeah, it has some moments between Barbara Gordon and uh, I guess Nightwing. So if you're absolutely Nightwing, Barbara Gordon shippers, then yeah, you you could I guess you could pick it up. Except, wouldn't you rather have Redondo draw that those moments as opposed to Robbie Rodriguez? And I say that with great respect, but that's just the way I feel about it. Um, I'm just glad this is over, and I don't think you know this issue does end by showing who this uh, seer is, and. Again, it just looks cliche. She's got this weird looking symbol. She's got this, I don't know, green glasses. She seems like like a young super genius, you know, looking really skinny and odd. And yet she's obviously psychopathic and evil. And I guess we're supposed to, I guess she's a teenage, she's a teenage boppy psychopath that she can fit right in with being the enemy for the Batgirls now. So we can all be happy about that, but okay, that's fine. It's this will be written. I'm sure they might as well put her on DC superhero girls and put her on that cartoon. I mean, that's what it feels like to me. You know, yeah, just, super tropey. Yeah, super, super tropey. tropey, super bad, super like I just uh, and I, I realize we're a couple of uh, you know. I mean, uh, I realize I'm a uh, I'm a 52 year old guy, you know, expressing disappointment in this, but. I realize these characters are no longer being written for me. I get that. I'm reminded of what Mark Wade once told me at a Comic-Con many years ago. He said, every generation deserves to have comic characters written for them. And so I got to think about that before I get too critical because it's, you know, if if this new approach, a new iteration of uh, Spoiler or Cass- and Cassandra Kane somehow is going to attract new readers, all the power to it, I'll happily stand aside and Hopefully the, you know, hopefully Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad can, can attract new readership to Batgirls, all the power to them. Uh, I don't want to be a negative Nelly. It's just, it's just hard because I, I, I've loved Cassandra Kane for so long and to see, see, see this happen to that character, it just breaks my heart. Yeah. At least you can go back and read those old stories that you loved. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay, uh, up next, Nice House on the Lake, number six. I thought it was on hiatus, but I guess this is the last issue before the couple-month hiatus. So it's written by James Tynan. Alvaro Martinez Bueno does the art and the cover. We have Jordi Belair on colors. World Design does the letters. We had the big reveal last uh, last time that there was uh, somebody else kind of in the vicinity, Reg, Reggie. Uh, and this is where we kind of learn a little bit more uh, about him. So what do you think of this issue, Rocky? I I liked it, and fortunately, it just popped up now. So <laughs> on my screen here, I apologize to those listening to the podcast. Uh, I well, let's just say that when when this ends, I'm really excited. I'm really excited for where this is going, because I it's it's very very fascinating. I got to give kudos to James Tynion because he sort of flipped the script on this. This it's revealed here that Walter, I mean, Walter is an alien and uh, he's from an alien race that essentially uh, all we knew, basically, they've been planning to destroy the Earth for a while. And Walter decided to hide, you know, 10 of his best friends that he met over the course of 30 years on this nice house by the lake. That's it. That's the premise of it. But it appears as over the course of these six issues, we've learned that it's not quite so simple. Walter really struggled in his decision-making in terms of who he chose and why he chose who he chose. And here in this issue, we get, we meet, I guess we meet Walter. We met Walter, or pardon me, we meet Reg, Reginald, who is essentially, uh, he's the painter. And he's the best friend of Walter. And, he, and, and we find out that Reg, Reg, uh, at the end of last issue, uh, all of the other nine, nine members managed to, coordinate their efforts and made their way into this this other house on the other side of the lake and Reg is in there and Reg basically tells him a story and what he says is very interesting. Reg thinks that there's still a way to save the earth. Now which is interesting because wasn't the earth destroyed? We had all these horrific images in the first five issues uh, beautifully illustrated by, by Alvaro Martinez Breno and uh, beautifully colored by Jordi Belair. All these horrific images and we thought the earth was destroyed and that th these were the only humans left, these 10 people in this nice house on the lake. But apparently that is not the case. At least Reggie, Reggie believes that it's possible, just possible, that they can still save the earth. Now, how is that possible? Well, apparently uh, uh, Walter let Reg in on what his plans were many years ago. But what happened is that Walter would tell Reg what his plans were and over the course of a long period of time, Walter would, would confide in Reg and then erase Reg's memory. And, but, and basically what, Reg was, what, what Walter told Reg is that, that the idea is that Walter was, was, is supposed to choose a sample set of human beings and put them together. And then once the sample set of human beings becomes stable, then they're going to destroy the earth. Which is really weird, because you think, well, you would think they'd only destroy the earth if if there's there's instability, you know. If if, but apparently, the idea that Walter had, Walter says his basically his superiors told him is that that's their plan is they they he saves a bunch of humans of his choice. In other words, he's going to pick the best of the best as a sample set, and then once that sample set becomes stable, then they're going to destroy the rest of the earth. And now what's 
Now, why the reason what makes this so fascinating is that all of this conflict that has arisen in the house since issue one, the fact that most all these characters that we met from the beginning, the painter, the architect, the, the writer, et cetera, et cetera, all these characters that we met from the beginning, they've began to, to to not get along with each other. And ironically enough, Reg thinks it's their inherent instability and inability to be to have a stable relationship as a group that's actually saving the earth because the longer it takes them to become stable that's probably a good thing so it's fascinating because i'm not sure how what reg's plan is to save potentially save the earth but i think it might involve continuing the animosity and the instability within the group. I'm not sure what his plan is, but I find it really, really fascinating. It's almost like they need to be a stable group before they can exterminate the world, but they're not stable, so they don't get along. And so perhaps the instability and chaos and the inability of humans to get along with each other might actually save the human race. <laughs> unless unless I'm reading it wrong, but I find, I find that interesting. So... Um, now, this issue, what makes this even more perhaps frustrating is at the end, Walter shows up, erases all of their memories, and so they're seemingly back to square one at the end of this issue. So, what's going on? Why would Walter's alien superiors wipe out humanity if the control group becomes stable? That seems counterintuitive to me, but it's weird and it's fascinating. So... I'm really liking the questions I'm asking. I'm I'm enjoying this. Did what did you get out of it? Yeah, this was kind of a mixed bag for me. Um, because up until this point, this felt like a wholly original idea where Tynan wasn't getting in into any tropes. But then when we find out, yeah, so these aliens, they my, my take on it, why they want to make sure that it's stable, it's kind of like, okay, let's take a page out of Brainiac's book, right? Preserver of Worlds. They want to destroy the earth, but they want to preserve the, you know, the core of it. So that's why they want to make sure it's stable, right? Like you wouldn't want to put a bunch of ants of different species together that would eat each other because then you wouldn't have an example of what ants were like. If you just, are they in turn going to destroy <laughs> right. all the ants? So, so they're going to destroy all the humans, but they want to have an example, you know, an example of what humans were for their zoo or their collection or whatever. That's kind of the take that I got it. So all of a sudden it's gone from this wholly original idea to this idea that, oh, aliens are going to preserve humans and as like an exhibit or an example or whatever. So that's not the, the newest or most original idea. And then we get the uh, whole men in black, a race, you know, aliens erasing memory kind of thing as well. Um, which just feels really ex deus machina to me. Like anytime Walter doesn't like the way things are going, he just shows up and says, forget. And they all forget. Like, if that's really the case, then the humans have no chance. They really don't. Um, but I, I mean, I, what I suspect will happen is that because Walter was was created by his alien masters to to be human, so he can understand and better choose who would be representative of of humans, that he's got the emotions that go with that, and he he genuinely has affection and love for these other humans that he's put in this. Uh, house on the lake and so that'll be how they get out of it um so yeah it is fascinating and it is a little different but it's it doesn't feel as original and as innovative as i originally thought because we're getting into some sci-fi tropes here um and the whole alien collection thing doesn't bother me as much as the the fact that 
Walter can just say forget at any point and they just forget. So it, it kind of seems like in order to get out of that, um, we're going to have to have some pretty big leaps because in a way it feels like Tynan's written himself into a corner, but, but maybe he's got a great way to get out of it. And that'll be what really elevates the series uh, at the next, at the next point. So, but the art is fantastic and it, it's still, it's still very much worth your time. It, you should definitely read it because uh, it's pretty damn solid. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow, written by Tom King. Uh, Bilkus Evely does the art. Mateus Lopez on colors. Clayton Cal handles the letters. The art is as fantastic as it's been throughout. Really great colors here from Mateus Lopez as well. Uh, and basically what happens in the issue is Supergirl and Ruthie finally get a chance to confront Kim of the Yellow Hills, but he has this, this artifact that he uses that's able to transport them um away it's, it's basically this mordrew globe and it's called a mordrew globe because mordrew if you're not familiar is the name of this future uh ancient uh, he's a uh, enemy of the legion of superheroes so that's why i say future but he's really ancient he's been around for a really long time so it's magic so that's why it works on supergirl and she's not able to escape and uh, basically, if you're losing a fight at any point, you just pull out this Mordrew globe and you teleport your enemies away. So that's exactly what Clem of the Yellow, Hill do Yellow Hills does. And he sends uh, Supergirl to this planet that apparently was created by some enemies of Superman way back in the day where it's putting out green light, but not just green light because the sun must in some way be infused with kryptonite because the, the sun is actually putting out kryptonite radiation, right? So instead of a yellow sun or a red sun, it's a green sun, and this light actually hurts her. And they land on it just as the sun is rising and they, uh, Ruthie has to keep Supergirl alive for 14 hours until the sun sets, uh, until she'll have some of her powers back and not be in as much pain and they can escape. Um, and so that's the story about how Ruthie defends Supergirl and even stands up to Supergirl when Supergirl's sort of out of it and delirious and is, wants to do something that would even put herself in danger. And uh, Ruthie knows that she's risking her life by standing up to Supergirl, just like she's risking her life to protect Supergirl from the aliens that are on the planet. Um, but she does stand up to Supergirl and they escape once the sun goes down. Um, the biggest problem I had with this issue is they <laughs> that Ruthie takes Supergirl and finds a place for her to rest, but it's right out in the sun. Why would you not put her in the shade? Like yeah. <laughs> I get it. Like, like light bounces around when it's daytime. Like, right. Like even if you're in your house with all yeah. the shades drawn, even with blackout curtains, I would argue it's always going to be a little bit lighter during the daytime than the sun, than when the sun is down, because that's just the way light works. It reflect refracts and reflects off everything to some extent. So, you know, you're not going to completely heal her. You may not even diminish the green sunlight to the point where she'll be able to fly out and escape because She'll come out of the shade trying to escape. But you're wearing a suit that you take off. Why would you not put Supergirl in that suit? Or take Supergirl's cape off and provide shade? Or go under any of these rock outcroppings where there is shade and keep her out of the direct green sunlight? It bugged me throughout the entire issue that they lay her out in the sun like she's trying to get a green suntan. Yeah. <laughs> it, it bugged me the entire time. Yeah. I didn't understand why in God's name. And, you know, as much as I've been enjoying this series, I couldn't get past that. 
I couldn't get past it. I don't, I don't understand. I really don't. Because as soon as the sun goes down, Supergirl <laughs> has enough power to fly off into space. Um, I, it just, it was too big of a, it's too big of a plot hole for me. I didn't like the issue just based on that. And I know I'm nitpicking, but it was so like page after page, panel after panel, put her in the shade, put at least cover her with her cape, cover her exposed skin with her cape, do something to get her. She's talking about how much pain she's in. The sunlight feels like needles <laughs> on her skin. If the sunlight feels like needles on her skin, I know what that feels like. I live in Phoenix, Arizona. And when it's 120, when it's 120 degrees and you stand in the direct sunlight, yeah. you're hell right. It feels like needles on your skin. That shit hurts. Yeah. So you know what I do? I stand in the shade if I have to be outside. This, you know, this isn't rocket science. Put her in the goddamn shade. Cover her exposed skin. Don't let that green sunlight hit her directly. It, it was maddening. I don't, did, did you notice that rocket? Am I the only oh. one? Well, I, I absolutely did notice that. And I, I will say that there was initially a vain attempt at an explanation because young Ruthie was thought her instinct was to was try to was to try to take uh, Supergirl toward the water and protect her under the trees, under the flora of the leaves and the trees. So I think that was her instinct. But she discovered that when she tried to go closer to the trees and the water, which would have given her the shade, that the animals came out, that the animals and the monsters of the area were also attracted to the flora and the water. And so therefore she was trapped on the rocks. I think that is what we're supposed to get out of that. But, but I still agree with you. There should have been some, why didn't she make a shelter? Why didn't she do something to protect if she knew that it you, I mean, Ruthie took her spacesuit off. Put her in your spacesuit, <laughs> yeah. so that she's her skin is protected. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I I agree. I I agree. But yeah. I are 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 you are are you finished with your comments? I'm, I, done, I, I'm done. I, I okay. Can't. Well, I, I just a couple of things that uh, this was the this was a, an issue that I thought was a, a wasted issue. Uh, I was very disappointed in this issue. Now, I want to be clear. Issues one through four, I loved every single issue. And what I loved about every single issue from one to four was that every single issue seemed to have a theme, seemed to have a point, seemed to have a message. And some of them were very powerful messages uh, that spoke outside the comic uh, about racism with the purples and the blues and the, and about just just even the first issue with Kara, you know, struggling with her, with her own, uh, her coming of age and her, her, her latent anger issues and, and meeting Ruthie for the first time and seeing herself and young Ruthie. But, but this issue, there's none of that. Having established all that in the first four issues, I wanted this issue to be something different, but all this issue was, was this was just a pointless issue. E even, even meeting Krem of Yellow Hills, this villain, they finally kept catch up to him. And he banishes them away to another planet, which even in of itself seems completely contrived. I mean, a planet that has essentially like a green emanating almost like a kryptonite sun. That seems really forced. It didn't quite work. But, but even if I buy into that, the fact that Supergirl, Superman could only last 45 minutes on the planet, but we're, we're supposed to believe that Supergirl lasted 10 hours. I, I find that hard. Like, again, if there would have been some attempt, some success by Ruthie, to save Supergirl, but she didn't. Supergirl only survived by the grace of God. Supergirl did not survive much because of what Gracie did. I guess you could say that the the the, the creature she did kill the one creature. Okay, I, I guess we can give Ruthie that. But 
I, I, I agree with you that there should something more should have been made about Ruthie protecting, uh, creating some sort of shade for, for for Supergirl. This issue did nothing new to the narrative. There was no theme, no message. There wasn't even a metaphor speaking to something else, uh, which was really surprising. This really was genuinely a wasted issue, and even the um, even the art by Bar uh, Bill, Bill Chris Everly, I thought was this was probably. Uh, because it was on the same planet, I, I just felt that it was probably her weakest issue as well, too. Although maybe that's just because I'm so disappointed with the story that my normal love for Bilko Severly is just hindered a little bit because of my disappointment with, with, with the issue. Um, so, yeah. Um, also, I it was hard for me to believe that Kara got her powers back after the sun went down. I mean, 10 hours to where the kryptonite sun and, 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 it, and it goes 14, down. Well, 14 hours even. 14 hours. Well, whatever it was, it, how does she get her powers back? I mean, she still needs sunlight. There's no sunlight. So I, I found it hard to believe that suddenly she could fly just because the sun went down. So I know Tom King is not the biggest guy when it comes to continuity and, and always making sense with, with past lore here. But this seemed to be a little bit of a stretch to me. And I thought with a little bit of more, with a little bit of creativity... I think some better explanations could, could have arisen from this. And especially, I, this is where I would have really liked to have seen. There was so much exposition. I think the first four issues, the exposition actually served the narrative well. This is one where the exposition, I thought, I would have liked to have seen some kind of dialogue between Krem of Yellow Hills, the villain, and Supergirl and Ruthie when they first encountered him. I, I would like to have seen that initial conversation instead of what we got was, there was just suddenly there was the Mordro globe. We saw no dialogue between them and they're suddenly banished off to another planet. It really felt like we were deprived of a moment. And then the entire issue was wasted where we learned nothing about Ruthie, nothing about Supergirl, no insights as to the larger narrative at all. It was just a very much a, a disappointment. And this is very much an issue where I'm, I'm fairly certain that when we collect all eight issues, we could literally skip issue five, and, and and I don't think people a reader would be none the wiser. But overall, uh, I still love Bill Crystal Everly's art, but this was definitely a miss for me narratively, completely unnecessary. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's too bad. Uh, I just couldn't get past the. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I obviously it's Kryptonian cells. It's it has stored the yellow sunlight. I guess she's in so much pain she can't really do anything. Is what I took it as. So that's why when the sun goes down, she could fly away, but. It's still like she's being if, if kryptonite is hitting her, it's draining her cells. She still has enough energy stored to fly away. Just one more reason she should have been in the shade. Who knew that yeah. the concept of shade was this advanced, huge idea <laughs> that Ruthie has never heard of? Like, uh, just so fast. Yeah. So she she grew up on like dirt, like they're rock farmers, right? They talk yeah. about out there in the heat, whatever. She's got to know what shade is. Oh, just so. So frustrating. Uh, all right. Uh, next issue was another one I was disappointed in when the best thing about it is the title. You know, you're in trouble. And again, it's because it's Tom Taylor. I expect a lot from him. Uh, John Tim handles the art. Hi-Fi does the colors. Dave Sharp on letters. It's Superman, son of Kal-El number five. And it's the issue everybody's been talking about because Superman kisses our Superboy. I can't call him Superman because to me, he just hasn't earned it. But either way, John Kent kisses a boy. Ooh, I really couldn't care less about it. Um, although I do have some comments about when it happens, um, because I'm me, <laughs> the fact he kisses a boy, don't care, could have been a girl. I still would have had the same thoughts and I'll get to it. 
but the title is who's got you which is a reference to uh my superman christopher reeve uh, and being a five-year-old kid and seeing at the movie theaters and falling in love with superman as a character where lois lane's falling after the helicopter crashed and christopher reeve catches her and he says don't worry miss i've got you and she says yeah but who's got you so that's fascinating i love that but unfortunately that's the best part of the the story um because it just felt like again this is not earned and i hate to keep beating that that drum but this is not earned and i i guess credit to tom taylor that he's showing us that 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 john kent is still really inexperienced to the point where he's he's you know we saw at the end of last issue president bendix shot him with this solar beam and now his powers are going haywire he's overcharged and he's using that energy to go around and save all these people at super fast speed but then even though he's charged up and he still can hear everybody calling for help around the world he starts getting tired he, he collapses at one point and he has to go to his buddy uh, apparently boyfriend soon to be boyfriend or love interest or whatever you want to call it jay Nak nakamura for help and jay nakamura is not superman or superboy but yet he seems to have more knowledge of what's going on with John Kent than John Kent himself does. Again, it goes to show that John Kent is not ready to be Superman. I'd rather the series was called Superboy. And if it's about his evolution to becoming Superman, then great. Maybe at the end of 24 issues, he graduates and then he can be Superman. I don't know. It still, it still bugs me. Things I liked. I actually liked the character of Jay Nakamura and whether or not he's a love interest for John Kent or not. It's kind of beside the point what i love about their relationship and jay mentions it and tom taylor kind of shoves it in our face but i think it's important is the fact that john kent right now is he is feeling overwhelmed he knows he's inexperienced his father's charged him with keeping an eye on earth while he's out there doing the whole war world thing and john feels like he's got the world on his shoulders that's why he wants to try to help everybody when his powers are charged up and Jay tells him, I'm the one person you don't have to worry about protecting, right? Because Jay has superpowers himself. He can phase through anything. So in that way, John, when he's with Jay, that feeling in the back of his head that I need to protect this guy and keep him safe, it's not there. So I, I do really appreciate that relationship. And I, I think that's part of the reason why there's attraction there. Because John never has to look at Jay as someone he has to protect first and a person second, like he does with a, a lot of people in, in his life. As far as the kiss itself, um, again, I, I really like that idea of the dynamic between John and Jay, where John gets to, gets to be more himself than he is with anybody else other than maybe Damien. Um, but obviously John's not attracted to Damien physically and apparently he is to Jay. He must, unlike Rocky, John must like pink hair. Uh, but, but the, the problem I had with the kiss is, is even though that dynamic, it makes a lot of sense that there would be that attraction. Um, it just, it felt like it just sort of came out of nowhere. I didn't think they spent enough real estate on the page building up to it, but maybe that's just me. Like he, at one point, you know, Jay says, I don't need you, you know, meaning I don't need you to protect me. And John, John's like, Oh, Oh, thanks. And, and Jay's like, I, I mean, with my powers, I can't be hurt. And you must feel like you have to protect everybody. And I'm, I'm the person you don't have to worry about. And then they kiss. Like it, it felt like a little bit, again, I don't mind that they kiss. It just felt like it, it 
kind of came out of nowhere. And I'd rather there would have been a little more emotion or romance or something like building up to it. Like maybe you give us a panel with them kind of touching hands or, you know, just something that leads up to it. It just, it just happened like that so quickly that I felt like it would have had more impact uh, if they had had a little romance or a little foreshadowing or something leading up to it, you know? Um, So that's, that's the problem I had with the kiss. Not the fact that he's kissing a boy. I I couldn't care less if it was a boy or a girl, whatever. I'd feel the same way if he was, if Jay was a girl and he was kissing a girl, I'd be like, he just kissed this girl out of nowhere. Why wasn't there more leading up to it? I get that there's that attraction and there's that emotion because of the dynamic I'm talking about where John's like, finally, somebody I don't have to worry about protecting. Um, but whatever, that's just me. This series is is a little inconsistent. It's a little up and down for me. I want to like it more than I do because it's Tom Taylor, but the inherent problems I have with it, with John Kent being editorially forced into this role, just make it hard for me to to buy John Kent as uh, as Superman. So I don't know. What do you think, Rocky? I um, I, <laughs> I I don't know. I I don't like the fact that he kissed this kid. I don't, I don't like the pink hair. I'm not a fan of Jay Nakamura. I don't. I, I just don't like it. Uh, and I'll I'll just I'll just express something because I don't like it because I'm not bisexual and I want him to be heterosexual. That's that's the truth. Uh, that's just the God's honest truth. Do I care that he's bi? No, not really. Uh, but I'll be honest if, that I have lost some some interest in the character. If I'd, I'd be lying if I said I hadn't. I mean, and and now I understand, I guess, how bisexuals and homosexuals feel when they fantasize about all their characters wanting them to be gay and they're not, and they lose interest maybe in their characters. I don't know. But I, I, I'm not... That's just me being brutally honest. I, I agree with you that there's... Look, there's spontaneity here. Look, I don't want to be. A, I feel I would be a hypocrite uh, if this was a good-looking. If if this was like uh, like when when Superboy kissed Saturn Girl in the pages of Legion of Superheroes and that with that far superior art by Ryan Sook on that beautiful cover with Superboy John Kent kissing Saturn Girl. I loved it, man. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic, and that was spontaneous. That wasn't really all that earned, although there was a little bit of an attraction there from the beginning. Uh, but I liked it. Um, now I guess, you know, now he's kissing a pink-haired uh, guy. Okay, okay, fine, I guess. It just, I, you know, part of me is, and this is part of my own maybe learning, you know, of my own sort of comfort level with it, and it's on me, I'm just being very frank, is I actually thought that, like, Superboy's reaction when he kisses, I, you notice I call him Superboy. I, I still can't call him Superman <laughs> because he looks like a super. John Tim draws him. He looks like a Superboy. I don't know why we're calling him Superman, but in any event, uh, it doesn't seem to bother John Kent that he just kissed a guy, a pink-haired guy. It doesn't seem to bother him, and of course, it's not supposed to because that would defeat the entire purpose, and the entire LGBTQ community would come crashing down on DC Comics. Should God forbid John Kent ever react and say, "Oh my God, I just ki- I just kissed this guy," um, it's 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 so everybody will be happy. Everybody can be very happy that immediately uh, we now know that John Kent not only is com- is 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 can has he been aged up seven years with no psychological trauma, but he can have his first kiss and discover that maybe he's gay because maybe if he doesn't know he's bi, maybe he's gay. I mean, he doesn't know yet. And he's completely comfortable with it. Doesn't phase him at all. That's where we're headed. This feels, this does feel, that's why this feels a little bit off to me as much as it feels off that he was aged up seven years. 
And look, I'm going to say all the right things, just like we all are. Okay, yeah, he's 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 always kissing a guy. He's kissing a guy, whatever. Uh, I'm more interested in the John Henry Bendix thing. I want him to kick John Bendix's uh, butt. I want him to have that. That's the stuff that I'm more interested in. I uh, I want to give compliments to John Timms on the art here. I'm not a I'm not a John Timms fan, but there's a double page spread here where John Timms. There's a scene where Superman, son of Kal El, has this is carrying this entire bridge, uh, which contains all the ambulances on it, and it's absolutely a beautiful double page spread. It's gorgeous. It does a very the backgrounds. John Timms. Uh, this is probably the best his backgrounds have been in a long time. I found that during Future State, a lot of John Timms issues, he he cheats on the backgrounds, but he's he brought his A game to this issue. So full props to John Timms. And, uh, you know, and I apologize to all people who have pink hair. I mean, you know, I'm just saying, I, I guess I have, you know, <laughs> I just, I, I still say of all, the, of all the types of characters that you could have drawn and for, 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 for John Kent, his first kiss for a guy. And it has to be for, uh, this, this Jay Nakamura. This is, I, I'm just, I think this is a miss. Uh, I don't think this is. I think this is a significant miss. I. 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 I hope that. I don't know. I. I hate to be negative, and. Uh, I. I actually, maybe, maybe I'll regret being as honest as I am about how I feel about it. I just. It's one of those things where, as an older reader, I. I realize I got to change, and I got to get used to different things too, and. Um, you know, and I am, and uh, we'll see how it goes. I'm in for the long haul here. I love Superman. I'm, you know, I love John Kent. I'm going to be reading these issues, and I want him to be the best hero he can be, and uh, we'll see. But because he's bisexual, I hope it's okay for me to cheer for Saturn Girl over Jay Nakamura because that's what I want to see. I mean, I figure if he kisses now, he's kissed Saturn Girl, and he's kissed and he he's kissed a blonde, and he's kissed a pinkhead. So I, I want him to end up with the blonde, okay? And uh, and hopefully I won't ruffle too many feathers by saying that. I think that's fine. <laughs> uh, all right, on to the last book we're going to talk about. It's uh, Newbie on the Amazons number two from writer Stephanie Williams and Vita Ayala. Stephanie Williams handles the script. Aletha Martinez on pencils, Mark Morales and Aletha Martinez on inks, Emilio Lopez and Alan Pasolaco on colors, Becca Carey on letters. I don't really have much to say about this um, because I don't feel like it's moving along far enough for me to really know what to think. Uh, felt like a lot of setup. The art's fantastic. The colors work really well. Love the the covers. Um, but yeah, this was another one of those issues this week where I, I just felt like waiting for something to happen. Uh, I don't know. How did you feel about it, Rocky? Well, I, I actually... Um, uh, I think, I think that this issue was all set up and I think it's, I think it's, I think it, I thought it was well handled, well structured. I want to give, uh, um, is it, I'm trying to remember who's the, uh, oh, uh, yeah, Williams, Stephanie Williams and, yeah. uh, Vita Ayala. They, they did it. I think they did a good job here pacing this issue, structuring it. I mean, it's teasing the a villain that's arising, and it's Medusa, the the villain Medusa, and uh, Med, the head. Um, let me just back up for a bit. There's a one of my favorite Greg Rucka Wonder Woman storylines is uh, when Wonder Woman fought Medusa, 
And there was a great storyline where Wonder, a blind Wonder Woman decapitates Medusa and defeats her. And now while technically I don't know if that storyline's in continuity anymore, I always love that particular storyline. In this particular issue, it's clear that the head of Medusa is actually somewhere in Doom's doorway, but the spirit of Medusa has escaped and is transferring her essence from, from Amazon to Amazon, uh, ultimately hoping to uh, acquire her head so she can become, I'm assuming, Medusa again. And every time Medusa uh, transfers her essence from Amazon to Amazon in this issue, the Amazon that she leaves or ultimately uh, turns to stone. Now, but that's only part of it. What There's a rich... There's a rich story behind it all, and it begins with Nubia talking to her patron goddesses, and she's given the gift. She's given the gift of distinguishing. Where apparently, Hippolyta, uh, the initial, the first queen, Hippolyta, Wonder Woman's mother, was given the gift of knowing. Nubia is given the gift by the goddesses, the gift of distinguishing. Now, what does the gift of distinguishing mean? It's not revealed. In fact, the goddesses say that once you figure out what the gift actually gives you and what the gift of distinguishing actually means, other gifts are going to reveal themselves as well. Now, which is, now this is typical, this is the stuff that I normally complain about, about gods. They always talk in riddles. They can't just tell you what the hell they're doing. You always got to experience some shit. You always got to figure stuff out. Like, if you're going to give me something, tell me what the hell it is. Like, like, what's the big deal? I mean, honestly, it's like being given a Christmas present. You can never open it. Like, really? I'm supposed to keep guessing until I figure it out? This is nonsense. But in any event, I'm, I'm ranting a little bit. But uh, a character here, uh, one of the Amazons by the name of uh, Mala asks, uh, ends up asking this character about, uh, asks Cleo about Medusa, about the location of her head. And Medusa is still trapped behind Doom's doorway, or so it is believed. And Mala is possessed by the spirit of Medusa. And meanwhile, another Amazon, Penelope, has visions of Themyscira in ruins. And she tells Helene, uh, another Amazon, that, that she has dreams of a paradise island destroyed and all the Amazons being changed into beasts. And she's really worried about it because it, it coincides with the Well of Souls becoming open again. And remember that before the the Well of Souls opened up, Nubia, Queen Nubia, was the last person to come out of the Well of Souls before it opened up again, and they got a new batch of Amazons, uh, one of which is the Trans Amazon Bia, which was in the uh, the news, uh, comic book news, over the last uh, month or so. In any event, um, Nubia feels a connection to one of the new Amazons called Andromeda, and it looks as if. Nubia, maybe in her initial, in her past life, when, because um, again, Am the way it works is that Amazons used to be women who were abused on man's world, and when they were, after they die, they they come out, they are reborn through the well of souls and become Amazons, and it looks as if Nubia and one of these other new Amazons, Andromeda, had a connection in a past life, and it looks like they may have potentially been perhaps sisters or best friends, maybe even lovers in a pastime. It's not really sure. This is revealed during when Nubia attends the Victor Circle. And the Victor Circle is essentially a tournament where, where it's a place where Amazons go to sort of fight each other and to sort of uh, 
uh, engage in hand-to-hand combat. And it's it's kind of cool. I, I kind of like the idea. It's where the Amazons go to let off some steam and kick each other's asses and have some fun. It's it's sort of like Mortal Kombat for Amazons. And I sort of like that because it's we're talking Amazons, peaceful warriors. Well, this is the warrior side of them. And I really like I like what Williams has, uh, has and Vieira Ayala have, have done with that. They've done a pretty good job building that up. And it's in the Victor Circle where where uh, nu- uh, where Nubia and Andromeda discover that they have this connection, and but ultimately at the end of the issue, Andromeda ends up being possessed by Medusa. And what's fascinating about that is clearly Medusa is going to is going to utilize the fact that Andromeda and Nubia have this connection to probably t- take advantage of Nubia, but it's probably going to be Andromeda's connection to Nubia that's going to ultimately overcome Medusa. That's my guess. But uh, I like so much is being set up here. There's a story here waiting to be told. This There's a lot jam-packed in this issue. And the art, as you indicated, Jace, is fantastic. I'm enjoying this. This is this remains my, this is my favorite. This was uh, my, my uh, well, actually, this is my favorite comic book this week. I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed this the most out of, out of all of them. And, um, yeah, I actually, you know, and, you know, as I said, I have some disappointments this week, but, uh, this one I enjoyed the most because I felt that a lot of effort went into this by the writers and it, I'm the most interested to see where it's going to go because I love the villain of Medusa. It's one of my favorite Wonder Woman villains and I'm glad to see that she's going to be coming back and terrorizing the Amazons. Fair enough. I I can't even pick a favorite. I nothing stood out for me this was a <laughs> was a disappointing week so uh, all right well in, in addition to the books that we talked about everybody there is a legends of the dark knight which is uh, a digital first so there's a collection of that that's the seventh issue of that uh there's also looney tunes number 263 and then for collections we have catwoman volume 5 valley of the shadow of death trade paperback we have the dreaming waking hours trade paperback we have the plunge trade paperback which is the joe hill Stuart eminen dave stewart um horror title there's also a refrigerator full of heads number two which is also in dc's uh, horror line and there's a couple of hardcovers uh justice league endless winter hardcover and then the the amazingly fantastic other history of the dc universe hardcover from writer uh john ridley which i i highly recommend so uh that's going to do it for this episode uh as always we want to thank everybody for joining us any last words rocky before we sign off uh no just um you know Bring on Saturn Girl to the pages of uh, Superman, Son of Kal-El. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So don't forget, everybody, uh, head over to YouTube if you're listening to us on the audio only. Uh, do a search for Comic Boom, Comic Space Boom, exclamation point. Make sure you're subscribed to Rocky's channel. Like this video. Ring that notification bell so you know when he puts out new content. Conversely, if you're checking us out on YouTube and you want to listen to the, any of the other Comic Source podcasts that we put out uh, as uh, audio only, Just go to your favorite podcasting app or podcasting platform and do a search for the comic source and you'll find us there. So once again, thanks for joining us, everybody, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. 
or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.